Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Sunday, August 26, 2018, starting at 2.45 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 169th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Lisa Scheim and Patrick Watson about rectification and the process of using astrology to find your correct birth time. Uh, hey guys, how's it going? Hey, good. Good. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to... It's been almost a year, I think, since it was our last episode, the Saturn and Sagittarius retrospective about a year ago now? I think so, yeah. Or was it the Capricorn? Well, for all three of us, I guess, together. All three of us together, yeah. yeah, Uh Okay. Yeah, Yeah, so maybe it was a little bit bit more recently, but it's still been a while since we all got together. Uh, But this is great. I'm excited about this, as I usually am, but I'm actually more excited than usual because this is going to be an awesome episode that I've been meaning to do for a while and that people have been asking about for a while, which is the big sort of looming topic of rectification, which is, yeah, it's it's a really big topic. And I was putting it off and putting it off and not sure how to deal with it and if I wanted to deal with it for a long time because there's a lot of trickiness. There's sometimes some controversy surrounding it, uh, but we're going to deal with all of that today. And I think people are going to find it really helpful uh, in the long term. So both of you rectify charts, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Okay. So that's a service that both of you offer. I also rectify charts and I have a lecture on my website that I sell on how to do chart rectification and I'm in the process of developing a course so it's kind of fresh in my mind right now, and that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about it today in order to set sort of a foundation for some of those discussions in the future by having this be essentially my first episode in the podcast series on rectification. So I wanted to start um, at the beginning and just assume that we don't know anything and we're not taking anything for granted and just sort of build things up from from there. So the first step and the first thing I I usually start out with when I talk about rectification is just defining our terms and defining the concept. So the term rectify itself, if you look it up in a dictionary, it means to set right, to put right, or to correct. And in in astrology, rectification is typically, I like to define it as a procedure that's used in order to find a birth time when a person's birth time is either unknown or is uncertain. So you know, what do we mean by that? What are some scenarios in which uh, a birth time might be unknown or uncertain? Well, um, some people will simply come and say, I don't, the hospitals or the, um, you know, the officials did not record birth times at the time or in the location where I was born. So you have some of those where you'll know the date of birth, but nothing at all about the time. So that's like one scenario. Um, or if they're adopted, sometimes they don't have, they're not actually privy to that information. Of of exactly you know uh, you know some of the details on the birth certificate. Um, uh, there's lots of reasons why someone may not know. The parents may not have any kind of recollection or never made a record of it. Um, you know, or the hospital has the records all burned in a fire. Um, sure, <laughs> right. Yeah. The hospital was destroyed by a freak uh, tsunami, which wiped out all of the records of birth at that time. Right. What, so so why is yeah. that important though? Maybe we should establish that first. Um, one of the, we're primarily talking about natal astrology here about casting birth charts or natal charts, which is a, a chart uh, cast for the moment of your birth that, that de- depicts the alignment of the planets at the moment you were born under the premise that 
that has something to say about your future and your character and events that will occur in your life in the future. And I guess this talk is important because many of the basic techniques of natal astrology and birth chart analysis um, require an accurate birth time. So what are some of the reasons for that, or what are some of the techniques that are actually dependent on a birth time? Both let's talk about maybe some basic techniques and then talk about some advanced techniques that you need to have an accurate birth time in order to use. So mm -hmm. what would some of those be? Like the houses, you know, mm -hmm. for example, to know what sign was rising on the local eastern horizon at the time places someone's born um, is, regardless of the house system you use, the way that uh, houses or topics of life uh, are divided or generated amongst uh, the signs. So um, that's important for getting those sort of more specific topical significations of of what specific area of life a sign or division of sign um, is relevant for. So for example, you know, the third house of siblings and the fourth house of um, home and family and the fifth house of children that you wouldn't know, um, you know, which sign or which portions of signs are assigned to which topic if you don't have the ascendant. So that's one, one thing you really need ascendant for the time of birth for. Right. right. So the the ascendant or the rising sign in a person's birth chart is calculated based on the birth time, and without an ascendant or without a rising sign, you can't calculate the twelve houses. And the twelve houses, especially, pertain to different areas of a person's life or different people in a person's life in natal astrology. Right. And so you know, with without the time, you'll have presumably for at least most of the planets, um, maybe maybe not the moon. You'll have planets in the signs, but um, the next step is putting them in houses and seeing how those different energies affect different areas of life. And so, like you all were saying, if you don't know where to put them, you know, the rising sign is where you start that entire sequence. And so without that, you don't know where those different planets are. Uh, also, um, the moon travels about 13 degrees a day. So depending on where the moon is on the day you were born, the moon could actually switch signs. So not only would it be in a different sign, or rather house, uh, but the, the the sign and its ruler would be completely different depending on when in the day you were born. And um, that would change the way you would interpret uh, their moon. And uh, it would change the applying and separating aspects. Right. They'd there was so actually a really minutes. famous case of that about a decade ago, a famous case of rectification with Obama's birth chart, where uh, there was a period of time where we didn't know we knew what day he was born, but we didn't know what time Obama was born. Late and Taurus or late Gemini moon. Yeah, oh, and astrologers. I remember on like mm -hmm. MySpace on on one of the astrology forums back then that astrologers are actually debating this whether Obama was a Taurus moon or a Gemini moon. And I remember one astrologer arguing very strongly that he was a Taurus moon, and I just was like, "That's not. That does not sound right." Because everything we we knew about the guy at the time was like his strength in in oratory. He was like a great speaker. And I was leaning towards the Gemini moon for that reason. And that actually, once the birth certificate was released, ended up being the case. So that in and of itself is just an instance right there of very loosely speaking, like rectification of having a choice between two options for birth chart placements and then having to reverse engineer what the person's true birth chart must have been based on what you know about their life. And that's basically rectification in a, in a nutshell. 
And that's more likely to happen with the moon because it travels more degrees in a day, but it can also affect uh, the other planets. Um, you know, if you're born close to a so-called cusp, um, then <laughs> uh, depending if you were born on a day when the sun actually changed signs, then even your sun sign would be uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, or know, the beginning or end of the... um, one of the other planets changing signs, which Sorry. doesn't happen nearly as yeah. often, of course, but does happen sometimes. Sure, sure. And we'll get into more of those technical details later. But the basic premise here is that, you know, many many techniques in astrology require an accurate birth time. And if you don't have if you don't know your birth time at all, or if you only have a rough approximation, then sometimes that makes rectification necessary if you want to be able to use some of those techniques. So um, sometimes rectification, I should point out just in terms of like adopting loose versus really strict definitions. Sometimes the term rectification is used more broadly to talk about just reverse engineering a, a chart in general. And actually, the earliest um, historical reference that I've been able to find to rectification, I was able to trace back to the first century BCE. And I talk about this a little bit in my book uh, on Hellenistic astrology. The earliest historical reference I found was actually um, an astrologer who was attempting to rectify and to find the chart for the founding of Rome. So it was like a Roman astrologer who was trying to find the founding chart for Rome, as well as the birth chart for the founder of Rome. And he came up with a speculative chart based on what he knew about Rome as an early empire and what he thought he knew about the founder of the sort of mythological founder of Rome. So that roughly speaking, could also be treated as a process of rectification because it can really be applied to any chart where you're trying to figure out the speculative birth chart for something. But most commonly, it's used whenever astrologers use that term. They're typically talking about natal astrology, and they're typically talking about trying to find the correct birth time in order to narrow down the correct birth chart for the individual. All right, so as we've talked about the basic premise is that the birth chart will describe the quality of the life as well as some events in the future. And so by extension, just from that premise, it should be possible to reverse engineer a chart based on known events if the person has already you know, been alive for a while, let's say a few decades, and some part of their life has already passed and some of the major events in their life have already taken place versus for you know, let's say a newborn, you couldn't really rectify a chart very well because they've just been born and not much has happened to them yet. So They're you don't have much clients. To, yeah, worse clients <laughs> in terms of just ranking your your clients, newborns would be lower lower on the list. <laughs> Top ten. They uh, never small, respond to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're always cranky. Um I, I can imagine that that's the next top ten list, Patrick, is like top ten worst client types, and that one would be up there. Babies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh right, babies or yeah, let, let's no, I'll shelf that actually. Yeah, we'll see that, that next time. <laughs> okay. I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> so especially any babies. So rectification is taking this theory that theoretically, like if astrology works and the birth charts should be able to say things about events in your life in the future, that if you know already some events that occur in the person's life, you should be able to reverse engineer the birth chart. And rectification typically then is actually applying that theory in practice, um, usually in cases of necessity where you don't have a choice but to sort of reverse engineer it like that in order to try to figure out what the person's birth time originally was. 
so you can figure out what their true birth chart was. So um, we've already touched on this a little bit, but what are some? Let's talk about some instances where rectification is necessary. And there, there seems like uh, Lisa, when we were talking about this in preparing the sort of outline, you identified two broad or distinct categories where there's either a limited time window when the person knows that they were born approximately during a certain part of the day, versus sometimes there is absolutely no time window in terms of they just know the day they were born, and it could be anywhere within that 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And one's much harder than the other to work with, I would say, because if you have a 24-hour period, then you have so many more combinations of factors. Um, if you just mess with the rising sign, as we'll talk about, um, there's just so many different combinations of variables that it becomes much more challenging to figure out with a decent degree of confidence um, that this is the right one, even the right rising sign, uh, much less the exact time. Versus if you have something like, oh, I know I was born um, after lunch and like before midnight, you then at least have like half of the day. So that cuts in half all of those variables. So they're pretty different in terms of, you know, how easy it is to work with. Right. So it's a, a large part of that then is a matter of, of difficulty and the number of variables. Because if you have, let's say, somebody where they were born within a two-hour time span and you just have to narrow it down within that two-hour time span, and let's say they have, it's a choice between they have either one rising sign, let's say Aquarius, or another rising sign, which is Pisces, then that's sort of dealing with two two different charts and the variables involved in that versus if it's a 24-hour period and let's say you're just trying to figure out the rising sign, there's going to be 12 different rising signs within that 24-hour period. So your variables just went up from like 2 to, to 12 suddenly. Yeah. So p- part of this is the number of variables that you have to deal with, which is the main struggle. Um, also, sometimes there can be a given birth time, but sometimes the birth time can be rounded. And in some instances, in order to use specific techniques that really rely on an exact birth time with a precise ascendant or other precise degrees in the chart, the chart may need to be rectified in order to use that technique to narrow things down. Yeah, and I run to run into that sometimes. I don't do a whole rectification session on it per se, but if I'm, for instance, using a given birth time from a birth certificate and it seems not rounded, but um, say I'm trying to use a timing technique like zodiacal releasing and the lots are very, very close to switching. Um, and in that particular technique where the lots uh, fall is when you begin this entire timing sequence. And so it's really important, even if it's only a matter of a few minutes difference. Um, so those are the cases in which I will try to kind of ask some questions during the session to try to figure out which one it's most likely to be. Especially if the time is close to a multiple of five, mm-hmm. because those tend to be the most sort of commonly rounded times. Um, Especially a talking, quarter, like a yeah, quarter. Uh, like so a... yeah, the most rounded time, according to... Uh, uh, some research by astrologer Renee Oshop. Uh, she uh, put out this article about um, basically the distribution of birth times of AA rated birth data from 1930 through to today on astro.com. And it showed that birth times rounded to the hour were the most common birth, like far beyond the normal amount that you should see. Uh, and then 30 minutes past, half past the hour was the next 
um, big peak, and then um, 15, 45 minutes past the hour, and then uh, the uh, 10, uh, 20, 40, 50 minutes were the next ones that were kind of beyond. And then the ones that were the least were the, you know, um, multiples of 5, 5, 25, 35, 55, et cetera. And then, so basically, uh, <laughs> if you see an hour, if you see an AA rated time uh, that's rounded to the hour or is is on the hour, unless like there's a specific note, like someone marked it down at the time knowing that it was actually at that time, should probably co- treat it a little cautiously. Um, just knowing that it is probably within an hour, um, you know, either before or after uh, the recorded time. So, yeah, I mean, that you do have to kind of do a bit of on-the-fly rectification as a, you know, an astrologer looking at a, lots of different charts. Um, right. Like all, all astrologers know that if you get a – if something gives you a birth time and it's like right on the hour – or even if it's on like the half hour, then it's very highly likely that you're probably working with a rounded time. So you have to be careful if there's any changes in that time within a, let's say, a 15 to 30 minute time frame before or after, that those could potentially be the person's actual birth chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the Renee Oshop article it was just published earlier this year on her website, and the title you can do a Google search for. Even the title is even AA rated rating charts in Astro Data Bank of people born after 1930 are highly likely to be wrong. So, because she shows that distribution and shows that um, the five increment thing that Patrick mentioned, but also especially the quarter and the half hour and on the hour, just stand out as being way more than they should or occurring way more frequently than they should in a random distribution. And that implies then, or then that's taken to imply that most recorded birth times are probably rounded. And it's either that or most people are being born like in 15 minute inter- <laughs> intervals or something like that. Although I we don't probably actually, how it works. <laughs> we, we probably actually do have to be careful about that due to things like um, the increasing use of, of C-sections. Right. Um, right. Because doctors probably would you know, potentially schedule those closer to, you know, half hours and hours and stuff like that. And I'm not sure if that's relevant at all here in terms of trying to interpret these results. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, although usually there's still time after that. So I would imagine, you know, from the beginning yeah. of the procedure to taking them out. So I don't know, the C-section ones that I've looked at that have marked C-section and have a time are still exact times. You can't always even trust those. So, I mean, it, you start going kind of going down a rabbit hole of not being able to trust anything you see. There is right. some degree to which you just have to accept that, like, you know, you don't know exactly who wrote it down and how well. I mean, I, I, I imagine it just varies from nurse to nurse, doctor to doctor, how well, you know, that time is being taken down. I know that for my own birth, the the clock on the wall was like 20 minutes off. And the official time of my birth certificate is actually like different than what my father said it was. Who my mom, as an astrologer, she told my father to make sure that she actually got my birth time, that he got my birth time correctly. And so he was the one who noticed that the clock was wrong on the wall and he pointed it out to the nurse. And she's like, Oh, I've been using that clock for all those times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> That's terrible. yeah, like, if, like, yeah, I wake so up heads with up, like cold if you were born. <laughs> If you were born during the Mercury retrograde of October 1987 at High Wycombe General Hospital in Bucks, UK, your time is off by like probably like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. 
Wow, but, that's right. terrible. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's I things literally, like that as keep a me up at night. Consulting astrologer, wake up with nightmares of Hashtag exactly that scenario. Astrologer nightmares, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, those are the things that keep me up at night. But um, yeah, I uh, you you can't. <laughs> this I guess it's just um, you just have to use you know your best sense you know that you can as far as you know what birth times you can you can trust. I tend to be a little more trust uh, trustful of times which are in those you know um, periods in between the multiples of five. You know, if someone gives me a birth time of like one o two, you know that that gives me a little more confidence. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I do too. As long as, as long as a.m. and p.m. are clear <laughs> as well, that's another right, nightmare. Right. I mean, though it's worth noting that you know um, when a birth is happening. That's not the first thing. That's probably, you know, like pretty down the list of like people's concerns in the room. You know, Was it's like, it for me? It's like the, <laughs> right, for most people. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I've definitely directed people to like pay attention to the time no matter what when there's a birth happening. But in terms of your regular births that don't involve an astrologer, you know. Um, I, I remember you, getting like minute by minute like email updates from you, Patrick, yeah, like yeah, when your first too. child was born. <laughs> I I made sure to get that time correct. And it actually yeah. really mattered because – he ended up being a 29 degree Taurus rising. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. if I hadn't been looking at the time very closely, you know, he, he right. like the next minute he was going to be Gemini rising. So right. that literally um, would have bothered you for the rest of his that, life if you didn't, you, didn't know. You're damn right. Yeah. <laughs> that would have definitely yeah. bothered you. So yeah. it, it definitely paid to, for me to pay attention to that. But um, yeah. uh, what's amazing now is in the future, people are going to probably have a social media record to be able to look back at because parents – Nowadays, when they, you know, usually it's mm-hmm. like a big social media event when people are, uh, you know, showing off, you know, hey, look, we birthed the kid. So there's usually timestamps on those posts. They usually mm-hmm. include the time in the posts. You know, now it's like a big cutesy thing. They have like a chalkboard and, you know, all this data about them. Like, you know, they, 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 you know, they were this heavy and they came out at this time and like people are right on top of it as a part of like this, um, you know, sort of showboating, <laughs> you know, thing. But it, it works. It works for people in the future because they're actually going to have potentially a much better, um, you know, digital record of of these births. So that's kind of exciting for the yeah. future astrologers. Yeah, that's definitely. Great in terms of records. I mean, it's probably worth noting that even if it does look like an exact time, the nurse could have turned around two minutes later and gone, oh, okay, right. I need to write down the time, you know, or that kind of thing. Um, mm. It's just, you know, check the baby, check yeah. the mother, and then when, write down the time. Right. I mean, so, when I, I – when I, uh, when I was there for the both both the births that I was present for, um, they actually called out the time, hmm. like, and then someone wrote it down. So they, you know, they said like one o six, and then hmm. you know heard the cry, you know. Okay. So that's, it was that's good to I know mean, because there's sometimes a debate where some astrologers assume that whatever the recorded time is is automatically going to could be slightly later right. than the actual birth, right? And that that is possible, and I'm but sure if, it varies, yeah. you know. Yeah. Right. There's yeah, different procedures and different hospitals all over the world. All right. So so when it comes to this in terms of the general subtopic right now of when is rectification usually necessary, I've got it broken down into the three categories of worst case scenario if there's absolutely no birth time in an entire 24-hour period. The less worst case scenario is if they have some general idea of what time of day they were born, like their parents remember that they were born, you know, around sunrise which I think was the case with like John Kerry. That's what his birth time is based on. Uh, or they were born in the evening or like 
my parents actually tell a funny story about how they were out like getting a haircut uh, when my mom's uh, water broke. And so you can actually, even though I have a recorded birth time, if I didn't, you could otherwise partially rectify it based on that known event that was happening and like what times of day they would have been able to get a haircut or what have you. So that's the less worst case scenario. And then the best case scenario is when they have a rounded time or an approximate time that just needs fine tuning. Um, although even this can be tough for some people with what I like to call cuspy ascendance, when the ascendant gets like really close to the very end of the sign or is very close to the very beginning of the sign, because then even sort of minute changes in the birth time could change the entire rising sign. Mm-hmm. Hashtag yeah, astrology a, nightmares. <laughs> well, I have a uh, my dad has twenty nine forty five rising, and it's I've spent like years literally like tracking events just to make sure that it's still that sign, which I've decided finally it is. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I have a few uh, friends on Twitter astrologers who are. are have like 29 degree rising or zero degree rising ascendants that are trying to figure this out right now. So this episode partially goes out to them who are, you know, trying to learn rectification in order to figure out what their true birth chart is as they learn and as they practice astrology. And that's also what people are trying to still decide on with uh, President Trump as well. You know, they're trying to decide is he really zero Virgo rising or 29 Leo rising. So yeah, it's it comes up every every so often. Right, because isn't his like at the very beginning of that minute? Because that's another funny thing that comes up in terms of how birth times are recorded is when you have even an exact minute, like you write down like nine fifty one a.m. That actually means in seconds, like nine. Usually, people will look at that as nine fifty one and zero seconds, but there's actually mm-hmm. sixty seconds in a minute. And there's some instances. I think Trump is one of those instances where it changes if you don't in take. A yeah, it changes yeah. within that minute. So if you don't take for granted that he was born at the very beginning of the minute rather than 30 seconds into the minute or 45 seconds into the minute or even like 59 seconds, let's say, um, then it could be a completely different rising sign. Right. I mean, and we're I, obviously we're measuring from, I mean, the the ascendant, when you see the ascendant in a chart, because there's three different kinds of ascendant, right? There's the one that is basically in a uh, projection from the equator. Or, and then there's the local one, which you see. And they're very, very small. I mean, the difference between them is very, very small. But, you know, due to atmospheric refraction, you can technically see two degrees lower than what your, you know, beyond what your um, uh, uh, ascendant is. Um, so, I mean, at the time, I guess you could say with the with a birth time that lead, that like technically it's like um, peeking into the other sign, even though like equatorially it's still at that 29 degrees but, yeah um, i mean that starts to get tricky in terms yeah, of the difference <laughs> between like a mathematical astrology versus observational astrology right. and some of the debates and it usually that. doesn't matter it usually doesn't matter because the planets and everything are so far away but for the horizon it is a kind of slightly uh tricky issue sure you're at those boundaries all right we'll we'll come back to that so yeah. Um, this brings up, and we started to get into this, but the next sort of general subtopic as we're getting further and further into this is this issue of rectifying, whether you're rectifying out of necessity or you're rectifying whatever the opposite is of necessity, I guess, as a matter of principle. And I've, I've always seen rectification as a matter of necessity. It's like something you have to do if you don't know the birth time because you don't have a choice. If, if the person wants to look at 
their house placements, if they want to know what their rising sign is, if they want to be able to use certain timing techniques, they need to know their birth time. And the only way to figure out the birth time is to rectify it if there's no other way. So it's like rectification as a matter of necessity. And I think the majority of rectification, the way that most astrologers apply it, that's usually the case. However, I have met some astrologers, especially some older astrologers occasionally, who believe that every chart should be rectified. Uh, one of those astrologers who passed away a few years ago was Axel Harvey, and that was just a general principle of his that he believed every birth chart needed to be rectified in order to basically to fine-tune the birth time under the premise that we were talking about earlier that he didn't think that you could take it for granted that any recorded birth time was necessarily accurate and that sometimes you needed to apply the techniques in order to see if your expectations matched the chart itself or if something was being thrown off like your expectations weren't being met by the events that were occurring in the person's life but they would be if you adjusted the chart one way or another and that, this is this is yeah. a really tricky tricky issue and tricky tricky debate mhm yeah i tend to fall more on the out of necessity um just because i think you can get a little bit um you know, if you do it for every single birth chart with the assumption that the times are more likely to be off than 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 correct, then you start to get into little tricky territory in terms of you kind of choosing which um, things are the most important. I mean, you already kind of do that when you read a chart, but um, I think there's just a little bit of human error potential to be introduced to something that could actually be the correct time. It's obviously not like a black or white issue, like the, probably somewhere in the middle is where I fall. But um, I wouldn't necessarily rectify every t every given time, especially if they were exact times, because I think you can get a little bit of hubris around it, like that you know better than than the recorded time and that something you're noticing must be more important. Yeah, that's a great point, because it's difficult to tell. How do you tell the difference between like just reading a chart kind of in, like a, a chart that's kind of hard to read versus like reading the wrong chart. I mean, right. it, it's difficult to know, um, right. you know, when, when, which, you know, which scenario is actually happening. I, I tend to fall on the um, necessity side as well. Uh, but I do see some value in, you know, kind of washing the fruit off before you eat it you know, polishing the stone before you try to make it skip. I mean, you know, I, I can see why Axel, you know, felt like that. Um, but uh, I, I don't know, that's just a, a level of paranoia that I almost can't, like, handle. I, right. <laughs> right. There's some degree to which you just kind of have to start working with the time that you have. Uh, you know, there's some degree to which you just have to kind of eventually – you know, settle on something, you know, right. be able to proceed in some way. And it can be a little bit fluid, like not like mm -hmm. an either or, like you could not intend to rectify a chart, but then once you start talking to a person, be like, hmm, it doesn't really seem like this is matching up well enough. And then you could start kind of inquiring and fiddling mm -hmm. and seeing if it might be off. So I don't know, that happens to me sometimes. Right. And so it's like the argument in favor is that there's no guarantee that even a decent looking recorded time uh, was recorded accurately, whereas the argument against rectifying every chart is the astrologer may not even be looking at the right techniques, or they may not. So, so you know, one astrologer, because one of the things that we're going to get into later is that rectification is very much 
um, dependent on what techniques you use as an astrologer. And every astrologer might approach rectification slightly differently or sometimes wildly differently depending on what their basic approach to natal astrology is. Because all rectification is is basically the application of your specific approach to natal astrology in order to try to back or reverse engineer a person's birth time. Um, and we all know, or, or very quickly early on in your studies, once you start learning astrology, you realize there's a lot of diversity in the field in terms of different approaches to interpreting a birth chart. So as a result, there's also a lot of different approaches to rectifying a birth chart. And so people, you know, one person might approach rectifying a chart with one set of techniques, and they might come to the conclusion that this is the wrong birth time because if it was moved, 10 minutes earlier than this technique that I use regularly would work really well, whereas it doesn't seem to work as well in my preferred technique with the recorded birth time. But then the problem I have with that is that sometimes you'll bring that to like another astrologer where I might look at the chart using different techniques like Hellenistic Time Lord techniques and think that the chart actually works perfectly well and the technique works really well using the recorded birth time um, mm. or different different variations of that. So that's an issue. Additionally, the astrologer might not have full knowledge of the person's life. Like, you know, uh, rectifying it, maybe there's some event that hasn't occurred yet in the person's life that will occur later on that will just fit perfectly with a recorded time. But you've, if you've already made the assumption that the time is off and you've rectified their chart, they might not later, you know, make the connection that the original chart was actually correct because they're then proceeding with this altered chart instead. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not all parts of your chart at every time of your life. I mean, that's why annual perfections is so useful and why these time lord periods are so useful because it kind of tells you like what parts of your chart you're even living out at a given time. So yeah, that's uh, that kind of gets into the, the the specific techniques you can use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so it's risky. I mean, in my opinion, it's risky to rect rectify everything because you might be wrong. But then, you know, some of these things like the Rene Oshop article about rounded times or the majority of times potentially being rounded definitely does give me some pause. And especially in charts where if it was like five or 10 minutes earlier or later, it could really make a difference or there's something really close to a cusp, then I can see the necessity of, of rectifying a little bit more. But you just have to, this then leads into our, another, our, our next subtopic, which is that one of the major underlying issues is that rectification is always ultimately speculative, um, that it's really a speculative application of astrology because oftentimes or the vast majority of the times, you're not really going to know for sure and you're not going to be able to verify whether your rectification was definitely correct. And in some instances, it might not be or the astrologer could be off either in minor ways or sometimes in major ways in their attempt to rectify the chart. So we always have to understand and contextualize rectification as something that's speculative and that's something that is an attempt on the individual astrologer's part to find or to sort of uncover the original birth time. Yeah, definitely. And I think all three of us probably approach it in pretty similar way in terms of kind of respecting the speculative nature of that, um, that it's very like research oriented and, um, you know, you can't say, oh, I've definitely found, you know, this. It's like you do your best possible work in kind of researching it to figure out where it should land, but you can't say this is definitely more reliable. And so, um, 
yeah, anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. The music producer, Quincy Jones, said that a mix is never finished, only abandoned. So, you know, that like that's sort of the attitude I take towards rectification. I try my best, obviously, to get as close as I can, but, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do beyond right. a certain point. So, you know, it's never finished, but it's abandoned. Yeah. Right. And, and that brings up actually a really important, like, practical issue for practicing astrologers that we were talking about before we started recording that you run into and that we've all run into, which is that rectification is such a challenging, it's probably one of the most challenging things in astrology. I think that's actually sometimes said that it's like the most challenging thing to do in astrology and it's the most labor intensive. So that sometimes in terms of doing it for clients, you can run into a real issue of like how to structure your time, how to charge for it, and how much time to actually devote to it. Because this is something where sometimes there's astrologers that spend, I don't know, over state that or over-dramatize it, but there's astrologers who like spend a good part of their career or their life like trying to figure out their their correct birth time or, or trying to figure that out um, if it was completely unknown. And there is an issue sometimes of like seeing clients about like how much time can you actually spend because if you did if you did like the full nine yards, you could spend years like really trying to rectify a person's chart, I feel like. Definitely. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why I most of the time rectify it to the rising sign rather than specific degrees, um, because you can do quite a lot with the rising sign compared to not having that. It sets up all the houses and the house placements and rulerships, um, and you just don't have the exact angle degrees. And, you know, while you could keep trying for that, and sometimes I do um, a little bit more, but uh, especially for the lots, um, which we'll talk about later, um, I, yeah, that's kind of where my middle ground lies in terms of how long it will take me and kind of like the most reliable results. I feel like a decent bit of confidence in. Yeah. I, <laughs> I've, I've been on kind of a journey with, uh, with rectifications because when I first started out, I just wanted, I wanted to try to, you know, give the most detailed, the most, you know, um, the best shot I could possibly give. Uh, to someone to find their exact birth time, and you know, um, I, it it just it took it did take quite a long time because I would have to kind of correspond with them over email. I'd have certain questions. I'd do some research on like what transfers were happening when, and I'd have more questions. And so it had to be kind of a back and forth like that, and it had to be over email because just it was an easy way for me to list all the dates I wanted to know about, or ranges of times I wanted to know about. So in some some ways, it's kind of frustrating for the person because it would take so long you know, for me to be able to get back to them and for them to get back to me. Um, and and then charging is difficult too because it is such a labor-intensive process. You want to charge, um, you know, probably make it the more expensive thing that you um, charge people for. But on the other hand, you're dealing with a person who, you know, is probably really frustrated by the fact that they don't have an exact birth time and that they, you know, want to apply some of these more specific techniques to their chart, but they just you know, they don't have, um, you know, a high enough degree of confidence in the, um, in what their birth time might be to proceed. So, you know, it kind of feels like probably for them that they're being kind of, uh, you know, uh, charged for something that wasn't their fault, you know? Mm. <laughs> so right. I, there's like I, a, te a tension there between the, 
sort of demands uh, the necessity of that the clients in versus like the necessity of the time constraints that the astrologers have just because there's so many variables you know if you're if you're right. trying to f- what co- collect all of the different events and circumstances and unique things in a person's life and then compare those to all of the different possible charts there's just you know hundreds or thousands of different events that you could check and take into account and at some point you just have to arbitrarily draw a line at where you have to stop and at the same time um you <laughs> you have to also take into account that it takes um i forget what i was going to say uh, <laughs> I've, it it's it's uh it's a speculative exercise as well. So you don't want to charge um, too much for something that you can't even necessarily verify like that you did a good job because you can do all this work and, and, and really feel like you're getting closer, but you could just be getting further away. So that's another tension. Like I don't, because I, if for myself at least, I don't want to feel like I am charging someone and, and um, promising that I'm actually going to get them the real time because obviously I want to do my best to do that. But I also know that, you know, this is as much of an art as it is, um, you know, uh, an exercise in astrological logic. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing, you know, and I've kind of gone back and forth on it, on my pricing and the way that I offer this. But um, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the closest I, I narrow it down to is uh, if, if I feel like I can, and if I think there are things which seem to suggest a specific, degree, then I'll try to get it to the degree, a four minute range. Um, otherwise I might only have, I might only be able to kind of confidently narrow down to the sign. It's really based on my degree of confidence. Right. And it's going to vary by from client to client, depending on the circumstances of what they know about their birth time or their birth date and the events in their life and some of the different things surrounding that. There's a lot of variables involved. Right. Yes. Okay. So, so each, each astrologer, um, uses their own preferred techniques and rectification, and as a result, different astrologers can come to different conclusions. Although not always, I should say, I once actually uh, rectified a time, and I ended up with the same rising sign and like roughly the same degrees as Rob Hand. And the the client later told me that either she had already gone to Rob Hand or she went to Rob Hand later, and he actually came up with like roughly the same birth time. So occasionally there can be overlap like that where. You know, astrologers, especially if they're coming at it, this is more likely if they're coming at it from the same tradition. Like if the three of us, for example, we're, we have very similar approaches, we all use whole sign houses, we all use the traditional rulership. Sometimes we apply the same timing techniques like perfections or zodiac releasing. So there's going to be a higher likelihood, I think, that, you know, the three of us would come to the same conclusion about a chart compared to if you had two astrologers from entirely different approaches or traditions trying to rectify the same chart, the results might be a little bit more mixed. I um, always independently pick the same elections that you guys do. Like, oh, yeah, once you the public, I'm like, charts. oh yeah, that one. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's always like, we always like right in my brain, like for those, like, so, um, uh, yeah, I'll take the credit, please. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, that is an interesting point. I, I would imagine that our results could be fairly similar if we did something like that. Probably. Yeah, um, and that has to do with just similarity a, in our approach, right? Just a, a standardization of approach, which I feel like didn't exist as much a few decades ago. But when you have people like us, or even you know Austin Kelly, who also have a very similar approach in terms of our our unique 
sort of synthesis of of traditional and modern astrology then when you start to get that sort of standardization of people using very similar approaches that that they can come to similar results across many different areas because you have the same basic set of procedures and that's one of the things that becomes really important for rectification is you have to which we're about to get into in the next section finally as we get into the technical section of this discussion you have to have like a standardized set of procedures that you apply to every natal chart in order to interpret it and that becomes your foundation for being able to do any rectification Mm -hmm, definitely i was in a workshop last year uh, an astrology workshop and one of the people in the class came up during the intermission to the astrologer running it and said with great frustration i've gone to three different people to rectify my chart and i have three completely different times that came out of it and then the person running it was like, oh, well, let me look at it too. Um, but that that kind of scares me and also reinforces what you were just saying is I feel like that probably wouldn't happen as much if you were using similar kind of like concrete techniques. And also the ones that really emphasize concrete events, perhaps, rather than psychological propensities. I think that's actually pretty important in terms of doing rectification. Not that you throw out the other, of course, but you know, the emphasis. Yeah, because it starts getting into something we'll talk about in just a minute in terms of the client's perception of their life and their character and events in their life and their own personality versus either your perception of that, your awareness of the events that have happened in their life, or you know the objective reality of what events and what their character is, which might be like a whole third category that's independent of what they think about it or what you think about it. Yeah, sometimes um, you have to kind of read behind, read between the lines because you know someone like telling you like I'm humble, I'm the most humble person in the entire world. Right. No one's more humble than me. And it's kind <laughs> right. of like, huh? You know, I don't think I should take you at your word. Um, yeah. You know, the, probably more of a sun person, maybe solar thing going on. But so right, there's yeah. like a news personality recently that was saying he was like, I'm literally the least racist person you've ever met in the world, or something like that. And it's like a little when somebody's like overstating something like that, like it it does, especially in a client session, raise the questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's useful if you're using techniques that don't over rely on the necessity of that. Sure. An unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. Unreliable narrator, which is a topic we've come come to a few times on the before on the podcast at different points, but it becomes especially relevant within this context. So we'll get more into that in just a second, but just to conclude this little section, um, you know, as a result of astrologers using different techniques or approaches, they can come to different conclusions. That's not necessarily always the case, but due to this, we have to realize and sort of set as a basis at the very beginning, and everybody should know and understand, especially people that are having their charts rectified, that after every rectification needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, and any time rectification has been employed, on your chart, you need to state that up front, or any time you as an astrologer, if you're using, let's say, a chart as an example in a teaching or something, if you've rectified that chart, that needs to be stated up front. Because anytime you say in a group of astrologers or to another astrologer that this chart has been rectified, they will immediately like process that, process that and understand that that means the reliability of the chart has been downgraded sort of a level in their mind on some level in varying degrees. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, grains of if, salt and whatnot, right? Different grains of sometimes like a huge mountain of salt um, needs to be, you know, kept in your mind if a rectification is stated. So, if you ever see an astrologer for a consultation and you've 
previously had your birth chart rectified by another astrologer, make sure you tell the astrologer that you're seeing that your birth chart has been rectified. Do not just like give them the time and say, this is my chart and this is my recorded birth time, because what you actually have is a speculative birth time that another astrologer came up with that the astrologer that you're taking it to, if they knew that that was a rectification, they might, they may or may not agree with, and they might adjust one way or another. So that's or very important. They might change up the techniques they use to investigate that chart. Because mm-hmm. I mean, there are some basic things you can do if you don't have a birth time. It can't be as detailed or as specific as if you, if you did. But um, yeah, best thing, just just to be upfront about it, please. Yeah. They might change which techniques they put emphasis on, even if you use multiple techniques. Um, and also on the flip side, as an astrologer, you should always ask, what is the source of this birth time for every client? Because once in a while, someone will say, oh, it's it was rectified. And right. then, so if you don't ask that, you will know. Yeah, there's like, yeah, I rectified it. Uh, I'd been studying astrology for about five days, and I, I figured out pretty early on that I must have uh, Capricorn rising because that places yes. the asteroid Sedna in my ninth house uh, right on the <laughs> <Right>. cusp. <laughs> Classic Sedna third house personality. Yeah, right. You're such a um, Sedna third house, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where my Sedna is. Uh, I don't uh, either. Kind of, well, it's it's really slow. It's probably the same for all of us. Like oh, most right. of us. Yeah. Are, Derp. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that sounds like a very twelfth house Lilith Black Moon thing of you to say, Chris. <laughs> right. That's going to be my next next T-shirt. That's my next T-shirt idea. <laughs> All right. So tell astrologers. And then recently, I've actually been annoyed that Astro Data Bank has been listing rectifications in their database. And I do not think that this is something they did occasionally. Like you would see that, but not as like a standard thing. But for some reason, they're like standardly listing sometimes rectifications now, which is driving me crazy. Yeah. You might as well just like delete the word rectifications and just put in the phrase a time some guy came up with like i mean because right, right. and because and it would be different if rectification were like a standardized practice but because it's not it's it, you know it's, that is not reliable and, and that is not a um it, it shouldn't even be mentioned yeah. <laughs> it's, it's still you know asher data bank should be just for you know properly sourced uh data or providing the status of that data and if it's unknown then it's unknown you know and if people are trying to rectify it then you know that's sort of a separate question of what its status is which is unknown so yeah i totally agree yeah i mean and not everyone i mean in addition to there not being a standard set of techniques um, or approaches that everyone uses not everyone even routinely rectifies and so the rectification could just be like someone who was fiddling around with a chart who otherwise you know doesn't necessarily use like concrete based techniques and so forth you know you just have no idea because it's all across the board. Anyone, people often like to actually speculative rectify to like for, you know, um, for public charts as kind of like an ego thing, I think. Um, Not necessarily Mm. with client work, but I think sometimes there's like a contest or perception of like, I'm going to be the first to like figure this out and and like I'm really smart because I rectified this chart and I know that it's the right one. So I see that a lot, you know, online. Conferences will advertise that they have that speculative <laughs> time yeah. and use it to drive up uh, a whole ticket long purchases. Story. <laughs> right? Yeah, I've never, I remember I've never that. Heard of I that know before. all about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah. Right. We're we're at your like the two or three year anniversary of you ending up in the Washington Post for that. <laughs> what was the title? It was like this birth time is not to be trusted. Yes. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. With no, a picture I, it, of Hillary Clinton like right below it. It's uh yeah, it it is it is on record. Yeah, what, I, one of you, not, not the whole story, but just like really briefly. Really briefly, uh, we didn't know Hillary's birth time, and uh, Mark Penfield got it from Zane Cohen, who's. Well, we don't. We need to go into names. Well, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. He said he had a birth time, and uh, it didn't come from a reliable source. And uh, they the, said that they had the uh, birth saw, certificate. They said they had the birth certificate. It, they had actually that wasn't true. Uh, the ESOL conference used it as an opportunity to drive up uh, sales for people to come to the conference where they were going to give an exclusive to reveal the birth time. But before they did that, um, a set of circumstances occurred that um, eventually resulted in a Washington Post reporter confronting him directly, uh, Mark Penfield, about the source of the time. And he finally had to put up a shut up and he admitted that you know, it was basically all baloney. And so um, that happened on the same <laughs> weekend that um, the ESO conference was going to, you know, unveil the time and it got totally shot to hell. And I'm sort of part of the reason why. God. And you were interviewed by the Washington Post because you and you and I had been like furiously right. f- uh, researching this time for like the two weeks leading up to the conference, trying to understand right. If it was legitimate or not, and yeah, came to I the mean, ha- I would wasn't. much rather have had just the real time, but you know, at least we got to shoot down a fake time. Yeah, well, that was that was good times. Yeah. <gasps> anyway, um, all right. So, so this brings up two before we move on to topics that have both been mentioned very recently. But one of them is the ego thing. So I, I occasionally do notice this. I don't know if you guys have noticed this as well, but it sometimes makes me nervous about rectification because sometimes there, there's it's not true of everybody, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But I mean, the Astro Data Bank thing does strike me in this way. It seems incredibly. I don't know. You have to have like a pretty big ego to think that your rectification skills are that good that you're willing to like put it in a database that's otherwise for recording accurate birth times and tracking accurate birth times. And that is like a shadow side that I sometimes see in rectification can be that like egoic thing of like, I'm the best astrologer in the world and I can figure out any birth time because I'm so good at it that I'm willing to, you know, make great claims about it. It's weird. It's sort of a weird mirror image of how skeptics uh, tend to think that the most impressive thing an astrologer can do is to guess someone's sun sign. Mm. Like, it, <laughs> so it's, you know, um, you know, this ability to think that you can, you know, rectify a chart, you know, uh, perfectly and just hey, have the goal to put it on Astro Data Bank is, yeah. Well, I think you just have shocking. to kind of strike a middle way with things like rectification because on the one hand, astrology at all um you know, shows you things that you shouldn't be able to know otherwise, as Chris has often said. And um, and so it is already something in that realm. And I think that's why people can so easily try to take it in that direction. Because if you can, if you as an astrologer can, can look at this chart of just like symbols and be like, this is what your parents were like, or, you know, this is what your career is like, um, then I think by the same um, manner of thinking, people might think, well, if I can go one further and I don't even have a birth time and I can say that I can say these things about you, you know, I think that's where the ego kind of comes in is pushing those same kind of same kind of skills or same kind of 
um, phenomena, you know, further. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it's reputed by all most astrologers to be like the most difficult thing to do in astrology, but then you're the person that supposedly specializes in it and you can figure out anyone's birth time, then it's um, seen as impressive or supposed to be seen as impressive or something like that. Right. And it is impressive if you can do that reliably and repeatedly. It's just because it's hard. It's really, it is really hard. It's a very challenging um, task that requires you to have a very I think investigative and perceptive approach to things, you know? Um, so, I mean, I think on the one hand, it is a little bit of measure of like how good you are at approaching astrological things in some way, but it's not, not everything depends on that. And there can still be lots of factors that can throw you, even if you are good. Right. Due to a lot of those variables that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. You could be, you could be wrong for the right reasons. Yeah, exactly. And well, I think we'll talk about a little, a few of those in the techniques. Right. Or right for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and then the last thing, and you, you guys sort of brought this up in passing, and it's almost like a whole separate thing, but it's a related issue of um, astrologers sometimes doing things that they don't specialize in or that they don't actually have much background in. This comes right. up the most commonly in like electional astrology. And Lisa and I were like constantly bemoaning this with different electional things in the past of just like what like a modern psychological astrologer who's like really good at character analysis in astrology occasionally will like you know there'd be an occasion to like uh, pick a time to start something and they'll like oh yeah i do that and they'll start applying like psychological astrology to picking a chart and what you the techniques that you would do and the things you would look for for like an event chart and picking an auspicious election are often very different than what you might look like in modern psychological astrology. And I don't know if that's because the approaches themselves are truly different, or if it's because modern psychological astrology is so much more just removed from attempting to make distinctions like good and bad or benefic and malefic, or look at things from an event perspective, and instead just looking at everything as, as psychological or, or what that is. But it's an issue that sometimes like that comes up most frequently in electional, but it's also probably slightly relevant here as well in terms of is the astrologer somebody who really um, has done rectification a lot before, who specializes in rectification, or is it somebody that just thinks that they know sort of their approach to natal astrology enough that they could re reverse engineer a chart theoretically? Well, I think it's where it starts. I mean, you got to start somewhere if you, I mean, you know, most astrologers have not gone through like a course of study, or uh, or maybe an incomplete course of study, or mostly independently um, knowledgeable um, through their own investigations and their own reading and uh, and their own experience. And I think that's where you'd have to start if you were starting a rectification. You'd have to eventually kind of get to a point where you know natal astrology well enough that you. You know, might take a chance on a child where you didn't know what the birthday was, but you knew certain things about certain signs and, you know, what happens when, you know, a given planet rules the ascendant and you might try to start whittling it down. I mean, that's the first, I think that's what the first step would kind of look like is someone who feels like they're comfortable enough with natal astrology to kind of do it backward as it were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to emphasize that or hark on that too much for that reason, because rectification for the most part really is just largely re reverse engineering natal astrology and using that to reverse engineer the birth time based on events you know in the person's life. And so 
if you're a good natal astrologer, then you could do rectification. Um, I guess it comes up more as an issue in electional astrology. That's where I'm more most frequently annoyed by it. But I could just see some of the same dynamics coming up in in natal astrology potentially as well. Where I don't know, there's certain mm-hmm. techniques where if you know about them, like if you know how to look at the rulers of the houses, that becomes a really relevant thing when you're doing rectification. But if that major, what is to me at least, a major component of of horoscopic astrology is not in your vocabulary, then you're missing like a major tool that's probably I would view as being crucial in rectification. But then of course yeah, you get well, into the whole subjective nature of different approaches well, to astrology. I, mean, I, I, would, and, I would suppose that if a psychological astrologer is attempting rectification that they would have a psychological approach to it. You know, it wouldn't be events based. It would be more, I guess, character based. Um, they would use that vocabulary to describe what they know, whereas someone who has, you know, uh, knowledge in a more um, predictive or event oriented, a more sort of uh, externally uh, located uh, kind of um, astrology, then uh, that's how they would approach rectification, focusing on those external events. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you can validly use different approaches to astrology to rectify, and they're certainly not. Um, each astrologer is not going to use all the possible techniques that one could use in doing in looking at charts in general or in doing rectification specifically. But at the same time, I think there is something to be said for the ability to look at both. You know, I do have a bias towards the ability to look at um, concrete events and what that looks like, the ability to look at the quality of a certain area of life rather than merely a psychological um, kind of manifestation, I guess. And it's not to say that those don't matter, but I think if you don't, if you can't even see those, even if that's not the only thing you're looking at, then you're going to miss things because usually with rectification, that's what people are going to be able to give you many years mm-hmm. after the fact is events, um, you know, is events and also like this is kind of how this area of my life goes more or less, you know, well, and not like, you know, Venus in any sign always is good for something, you know? And there's always going to be some degree to which, I mean, the, I mean, I think the least, (laughs) you know, there's three main candidates I would think for planets, which, which have a, um, uh, kind of a more, uh, more of a, uh, psychological, like you could apply some psychological analysis to, for example, to the ruler of the ascendant uh, or the sect light, you know, there's, I mean, and that's a way that you can narrow things down as well. Like, you know, what is this person kind of, you know, more like Mars in general? Sure. Like what, sure. you know, what are they kind of, what do they present themselves as? What, what is, what is sort of the main thrust of their, their MO, the way they kind of go through life, the way they kind of appear to people? Like what's the, and that can often give you a lot of insight just into, you know, which planetary archetype they tend to um, embody most. Absolutely. Right. And I definitely the use that to do too. Both. Yeah, exactly. It's just like not having those other tools versus right. being able to use both. Because if mm-hmm. you were if it was the if it was reversed and it was the issue where like the tradition flipped with the revival of traditional astrology and everybody was just doing predictive event oriented astrology, then you would be missing out if you weren't incorporating the character analysis and the ability to see how the archetypes are manifesting in a career in a character or in a psychological sense. Then that would be what's deficient. It's it's only that we're coming out of the phase of the tradition where it's been almost entirely character based, and now it's 
having to incorporate and say that we need to incorporate event-based astrology more into it, that we're able to sort of frame it that way. But it's really just the ability to do both sort of simultaneously so that you can look at if somebody potentially has Mars in the first house and understand that it could manifest either literally as an event, like uh, physically, or it could manifest psychologically, like as Mars in the first house manifesting as this person's career is more, or, or this person's character is more like brash and assertive and or aggressive or something like that, or has it manifested in a specific event where they got, um, you know, robbed when they were sixteen and like stabbed in the arm, and they have a scar from being stabbed or something like that, which could have been like an event that activated that Mars placement. Right. Yeah. So yeah, achieving balance between those two approaches of the event based and also the the psychological or the character based things is really super important when it comes to rectification because that allows you that gives you. Um, the full array of necessary tools in your sort of investigative approach. Mm-hmm. All right. So that brings us to the end of that whole section. Let's actually get into now some actual strategies for rectification. And as we transition into this, of course, the first like primary thing that we have to get out of the way in terms of practical details is that first, it's important to search everywhere and make sure you've done an exhaustive search for possible birth records first before you spend a bunch of time like rectifying it. So don't, you know, go out and like have an astrologer spend like a month rectifying your birth time and then it turns around that you find your birth certificate like in your sock drawer the week after they finish it or something like something like that. There's right. a um there's a uh, well it's a, there's a page on Astro Databank that has um the birth certificate policies for each state in the United States. So I imagine that might be a good link to throw up on the on the video when this goes up. Uh, and um, there's also a page about uh, different countries and their birth certificate policies, like whether they record birth times on them or not. So that might be a good place to uh, start looking if you um, aren't even sure <laughs> where to begin with your birth certificate. Because in some cases, you know, you may be in a place that... Um, you know, has birth certificates obviously, but doesn't record the time or something like that. Or they only recorded the time up to a certain time, uh, a certain year or range of years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's there's a surprising number of those where it's just a range or there'll be like a range cut out. Like the mm-hmm. 1950s weren't re- recording times, but before and after they were, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I've definitely brought this up to great effect to clients in the past um, because even then if the birth certificate doesn't have a time available, sometimes the next tier would be like, but the, re- but the hospitals recorded times. Um, mm-hmm. And they would have something like uh, something they would put in the crib that had like the name and, you know, the gender and the um, birth time. So I've heard of this. I don't think it was in the US. And so it's good to inquire about any possible other written records that could possibly be out there, baby books or a big one, you know, or newspaper announcements, sometimes newspaper announcements. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, baby books, something else. Oh, like family Bibles. Sometimes they'll like record important events. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's some Bibles, like some churches, I feel like in like Europe or other places, I feel like we have some old records where for some reason it was like kept on record by the church. Hmm. Uh, sometimes baptism records they have, but the, I mean, I don't know if those would have the time of birth on on the mm-hmm. on a baptism record. Yeah. Uh, but the, like, yeah, the churches tend to keep a baptism record, which can be right. useful in itself um, for um, 
births that we don't know a whole lot about. Like I think, you know, like for example, we have William Shakespeare's baptism record, you know, which kind of gives us like a some insight into, you know, when he was born and mm-hmm. things like that. You also want to um, be careful with if um, people were born in areas where the um, the laws have changed on what's important to be recorded, not just during the, the years, but, um, you know, per location, per country. I, I knew someone who was born in Mexico several decades ago, and wherever she was born, they the policy was actually to record the date when the parents registered the birth, not necessarily the actual birth. So it wasn't even Hashtag necessarily astrology nightmares. Right. Yeah, it wasn't even. <laughs> Thank you for worked. implanting it, that so, in my mind. Right. <laughs> well, you don't even know if it's the right date then. Um, uh-huh. And in fact, you just know this is when they they registered, and hopefully the family knows the actual date of birth. Oh, so. it, oh, another another fun nightmare as well to have is um, sometimes the time zone laws have changed oh, yeah. in certain states for certain yeah. periods of time. Yeah. So you want to make sure you have that straight as well, if that's at all in uh, doubt. And you can't always trust, um, you know, Solify even to kind of know exactly what. I mean, generally, Solify is really good and Astro.com is usually really good about kind of knowing like when um you know time zone switches or changes but it is something to that will always be nagging at the back of your skull like <laughs> like mm-hmm. time zone issues um that's a know, big potential valid motivator for rectification if the person mm-hmm. was born in a city where there's some question about the, about whether daylight savings time was in effect and i know in like the middle of middle of the 20th century in like chicago we have like huge issues with that right yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I've had a few clients with that where like it'll pop up and usually on solar fire, it will give you the alert if it's one of those that they've flagged. But it's like, note at this time uh, or d- during this time period in Illinois, they were required to um, record it in specific, you know, like daylight savings time or standard time. I forget which, but then not ne- you have to question whether it was written down that way or well, the issue, some right? of them will say it won't. What was it? Because you know it, Patrick. It was like daylight savings time was was in effect nationwide, but then there was some stupid local law that said that they were supposed to record in standard time or something like that. I yeah, something like it's that. It's just it's making me glaze over just thinking about it. Okay, um, yeah, it's something like that. And I've yeah, had a few right. clients have that have had the, that exact issue. In um, yeah, time. and yeah. people are still kind of messing around with it too. Florida recently um, was kind of going over whether they wanted to change. Uh, get rid of um no they wanted to switch to daylight saving time permanently um i live in arizona and they don't have daylight saving time so uh i feel like that's just the way the world should go we should go back to like not having daylight saving time um it's just such a hassle yeah i mean Um, luckily i think in modern times this is becoming less of an issue because we have like the the olsen time zone database where a lot of this stuff is being recorded and is being synchronized really well because it becomes mm -hmm. really important for computers and for servers and different things like that so it's like you have to track it relatively well it's more of an issue as far as i know at this point for you know previously with like birth times from the middle of the 20th century or earlier right where you have a lot of these questions sometimes about time zone issues Mm -hmm. yeah all right so um yeah so that's the starting point try to find some birth record first exhaust all of your options you know ideally the birth certificate is the best thing but a birth record or a baby book or something is next best after that the next best thing is make sure 
the person or either you yourself or the person has talked to the parents, has talked to other relatives to see if other relatives have any rec- recollection about the time and see if they recall at the very least like the time of day. Like I feel like I have a lot of relatives where the parents or other relatives who were around at the time will at least remember something about the time of day. Like if it was this this can help to narrow down the approximate time frame that you have to work with as the astrologer. Um, like if they remember that it w- they were born around sunrise or uh, midnight, you know, yeah, or if they're born at midnight or in the Meals evening, the or uh, Patrick, our famous one, uh, born in time for breakfast. That was another <laughs> <laughs> uh, supposed <laughs> time for Hillary Clinton was supposedly based on that. But now there's a question right. of whether that statement was ever actually made. Right. You know, we don't have to and, get into that. Well, and actually, that's a good you know reminder that you know even so it's much better to have a part of the day to start working with rather that's from someone's memory versus a 24 hours. And I actually only work with like, if there's some portion of the day not 24 hours in terms of my own rectification practice. So you like 10 people away? Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> it's a, it's a balance again in terms yeah. of um, what I feel like I can reliably nail down with a right. decent degree, with my own personal degree of certainty that I want in terms of right. giving that service. And Maybe at some point that will change, but for now, with the tools I have used, I think successfully, um, I feel good about that for about like eight hours or something like that, four or five rising signs, maybe six. But um, when it's a whole 24 hours, it's a lot of variables, and I feel less confident in saying this is probably it. So, but um, what was I, what I was going to say about that was, you know, so it's definitely great to have a part of the day rather than 24 hours complete unknown. But I've really come not even just from rectifications, but from client work in general, I've come to really um, cast much more doubt than I did before on the whole mother's memory of part of day. And I don't want to sound rude about it because, you know, um, you know, they're the ones giving birth and, you know, it should be like this really big event. But I've just had so many occasions now where um, even the time part of day is sometimes wrong after that someone finally finds their birth certificate. Whereas where, they, you know, where like they'll, they'll, they'll initially talk to the parents and the parents will be like, yeah, it was about six, six o'clock. And then yeah. later they find their birth certificate and it was just something completely different. Exactly. Yeah. That's like a really common, I think, experience as astrologers. And it's led to, I think, a general consensus where it's often stated that the parents' memories are generally viewed as being more unreliable than the birth certificate. Although it's funny because that is the general consensus, but then you have interesting, you know, your anecdote, Patrick, where it's, it's actually the opposite for you with with your birth. Um, Is that the case? Or am I remember that correctly? Yeah. I, I told Mm -hmm. the story of my, yeah, of my birth. Yeah. uh, That my parents like, well, because it was because my mom was, you know, into astrology that she wanted to make sure that she got the time right. 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 And not uh, most people wouldn't be doing that. But otherwise, the recorded time would have been wrong for you. But that's like a unique instance right. that stood out. Whereas the majority of the time, it's probably the opposite, where right. you got to rely on the birth record and and the birth, parents' birth times. Their memories can be unreliable because it's such a crazy experience and such a crazy day for them, or or sometimes like multiple days of like you know suddenly going into labor and then the labor itself and if that was their first child or whatever else was going on in their life at that time and they really may not have a clear an actually clear memory of exactly like what time the birth occurred in 
Well, and especially so if you're not asking soon after, which you're usually not. You're usually usually asking them like 30, 40 years later. Right. You know, so asking you for what lunch, (laughs) what what you had for lunch in like May 1st of 1992. Right. Yeah. So it can morph. Nick knows. Right. Nick Digginbest knows. Right. Yeah. He'd be like, well, actually, I was was eating at a pizzeria in downtown Manhattan and I was reading (laughs) a book on Mick Jagger. Right. (laughs) The virtue of Burger Planets. Right. Right, that is the virtue of Virgo planets. Um, all right, so uh, try to figure out what the memories of the parents are, and it's not just the parents. Sometimes there can be other relatives that remember other things, and that can be that can help to cooperate each other. Or sometimes it can be different. I've had instances where like the parents remembered one time, but then like the uncle was like, "No, no, they have no idea what they're talking about. It was actually like five p.m." And by that, and that that's the moment when you realize that you you almost you're almost like a detective. Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. like <laughs> this hunting is a, down, you know, this piece of information, you know, and you're having a, you know, uh, uh, cross-reference, you know, your <laughs> your evidence and mm-hmm. um, statements, and trying to figure out like what what is actually happening, right? right. And that, that is kind of the essence of the entire project of rectification. Yeah, it's detective work. Right. And I think that is why the, all three of us excel at it with our, our various Scorpio placements of different sorts. Uh, because it, and that's why I called it at the very beginning. I often have a, I had a difficult time figuring out, like, how do you classify what re- rectification is? Is it a, is it a technique? Um, but it's not necessarily a technique. And so I call it a, it's a procedure, uh, is what I've been calling it, or at least that's how I classified it at the beginning, because it's like this process or this procedure that you do of this sort of investigative work of trying to, um, reverse engineer, but also like, you know, take different accounts and all of the evidence and all of the different testimony and like witness statements into account in order to come to a final verdict. And maybe even placing it in like a judicial context is a good one because that's a really good example where it's like, you know, in a in a court, like a court case, you have two different sides and they're trying to do their best to present the evidence to make their argument. And ultimately, like it's up to the jury as like this this third party observer to like look at all the evidence and decide if the person is like guilty or not guilty. And that's like the weird way that that that's like the best way that we've come up with in order to to figure out legal truth or to decide law and things like that at this point. Um, but that's kind of what you're doing when it comes to rectification as well. Right, definitely. And I often find like. I'm looking to pile up more and more evidence or things that, um, you know, contradict like one particular idea of that, you know, when I start getting an idea of this might be the rising sign and get like, do you have two or three pieces of evidence that point in that direction versus just one? Or do you have things that come up that make that unlikely all of a sudden and things like that? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes certain charts, are almost, there's almost like, um, there's sometimes it's a different thing with each chart that you kind of keep having to kind of come back to, um, like uh, just uh, like a few transits that kind of stick out that um, you know you otherwise have like a good case, but then like there's these sort of glaring inconsistencies, and you're just mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, how does that fit? Like right. maybe eh, yeah. Well, and what's scary about that is, you know, that can either mean you don't have it right and you have to second guess everything you've just done, or it can just mean 
well, there's always multiple factors going on at any given time. And so is it because of some other thing that's happening in the chart? Right. Is there something that's missing? Is there something that hasn't happened yet? Is there something the client hasn't told you about? That was a famous one that was like a sort of quasi-rectification at like an Oprah retreat a few years ago. Uh, we had a panel and it was like in front of the entire conference attendee audience. And I was on the panel of astrologers that were, what were we trying to do? We were trying to delineate like an, an anonymous chart, which is kind of like an interesting approximation of rectification and um, kept focusing on like some lineup of planets that was in a certain house and like some important event that must have happened in that area. And the person got up afterwards and was just like, no, nothing happened. That didn't really connect with me. And everyone was kind of disappointed. But then later it turned out we sort of got word that the person that that stuff had been spot on and some major event had happened, but the person just didn't want to talk about it publicly. And, you know, that being an issue when you're doing rectification as well, as well as the two. The issue of who's your rectification for, and on the one hand, is it for like a client and somebody you're talking to directly, versus uh, Patrick? You and I have had a lot of experience with attempting to rectify like politicians' birth times, where oftentimes from politicians you'll know their birth date and location, but not a time, and then trying to figure that out based on events you know about their life, but not being able to actually talk to or interact with that person directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yep. a really big difference in terms of the information that's available and in terms of getting information that would not otherwise be recorded in any sort of written format and would not be publicly known. And yeah, it's a really big difference. Right. Uh yeah, like on all of our work with Hillary Clinton's chart, um we eventually we will get an answer on that because of the um you think <laughs> genealog- genealogical copy of her birth certificate, which will become available like in 2022 on her birthday. Like once she reaches a certain age, um, the record becomes public. So it's only it 2022. Will... Yeah, That's yeah, only four, four years from now. Yeah. I think it's in, I think it's in 2022. So that will like, yeah, on her birthday, hmm. we will be able to get a public record of the, her birth certificate. And I feel like you're jinxing us for some reason. Closure. <laughs> Finally get some closure on, you know, whether, you know, predictions were wrong because people were using the wrong time or people using the right time, but based, you know, incorrect predictions off of it. So, um, yeah. And and astrologers will will go to great lengths to not have to rectify by doing things like I did and going up to her at a book signing and like asking her, what time were you born? And yeah, her saying, I don't know, like eight, I think eight o'clock in the evening. Right. So, um, yeah, but I hope you're not jinxing us on that. Isn't there some important proviso, like if something happens before eight twenty? Oh, if she dies it... before, if she dies before that date, then it's going to be we won't get access to it for uh, like another like twenty years or something. Like it's great, some terrible. So yeah, she has to she has to stay with us uh, so that we can have access to um, that document. Obviously, I've you know nothing but best wishes for her. I just you know, <laughs> it's a really weird law. I'd I think it would be the reverse. That's kind of a tangent, but right? Like. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll have to look at the law again. But that's the last time I looked into this seriously. Um, yeah, if we just wait a little bit, wait a couple more years, wait a few more years, then there is a copy that will be available. But if she dies before then, it won't be available for much longer after that. Okay. Just Illinois law. <laughs> All right. Just just astrologer things like waiting yeah. on politicians. <laughs> Hashtag astrologer nightmares. Right. Um, okay. So uh, let's move on to some technical stuff at this point. We've got most of the practical details out of the way. Um, so 
my approach to this, I started developing this approach uh, about a decade ago, at least when I started seeing clients more, more consistently in like the mid 2000s, once my practice of Hellenistic astrology was getting down and I was pretty comfortable doing, um, you know, the, the sort of synthesis that I came up with of modern and traditional astrology, which uses whole sign houses and uses the traditional rulerships, but also incorporates like the outer planets and their aspects to natal planets as well as their transits and things like that. And I wrote this article about a decade ago on rectification that's still on the horoscopic astrology blog that outlines more or less the basics of my approach. And one of the things that I realized pretty early on in my studies, once I had converted to whole sign houses, and once I started seeing clients where their birth time was sometimes <clears throat> un clear or unreliable is that rectifying when you use whole sign houses one of the interesting side effects of that is that rectification accidentally one of the benefits or just sort of a fringe benefit or bonus is that rectification becomes much easier because then um, every time the rising sign changes all of the the house placements change for the entire chart and so mm -hmm. there's much more of a difference if you're using whole sign houses between one rising sign versus another. And even if it's only like a five minute difference in the time, if that ascendant, if the degree of the ascendant changes signs, then that changes the rising sign and it changes the rest of the 12 houses for every planet in the chart. And that sort of indirectly makes it easier to narrow down the rising sign because the differences are much more stark um, in that case. And that became sort of the foundation of my approach to doing rectification over the years with clients. And then I think you guys have sort of adopted that approach as well. And then I, when I wrote my, started writing my book a few years ago, I stopped seeing clients and started referring all of my rectification consultations to you guys. So I know you guys have been doing a ton of rectifications over the past few years and have gotten even more proficient at it and gotten really good at it using that similar approach for the most part. I, I think one of the main benefits of, of that, exactly as you described, but I, I think like the first thing that I would do, if you're listening to this and you're kind of wondering like, okay, what is the first step to that? Um, so in whatever time period you're looking at, whatever time range the person's birth time may be in, whether that's the full 24 hours or, you know, the like six hour range you might be working with, you just, uh, you know, look at, uh, note down where, every ascendant ruler falls, like what house and sign each ascendant ruler is in. So you'd know, for example, okay, if they're in Aries rising, Mars is in Libra. If Taurus is rising, Venus is in you know, Aquarius. Um, just figure it out, like write down where every ascendant ruler would end up if they were that ascendant. Because that gives you then, at most, 12 options for... Um, how that person you know expresses himself potentially it, it, the ruler of the ascendant is a planet which um really uh i don't want to say like i mean it's the planet but basically it's the one yeah, planet we're, we're gonna cut there, let's not you. go that might be okay. jumping a little too far ahead okay all right bottom me so let's let's start just with the the rising sign and talking about the difference between the rising sign and the rising degree because the the first basic principle, and this is something that really trips people up because they make it more complicated than it needs to be right from the start, is that it's easier to figure out the rising sign than the rising degree. I think that's like an easily like not even arguable thing that most astrologers would probably agree on, right? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. So that should uh, arguably then, and especially from our perspective using whole sign houses, but I would think even if you're using quadrant houses, this would still largely be the case. Um, figuring out the rising sign should probably be your first starting point since there's only 12 signs, or there's only 12 signs of the zodiac, and there's only 12 possible rising signs during a 24 hour period because the ascendant spends approximately, let's say, like two hours, give or take, in each sign. So every, you know, approximately two hours, give or take, the rising sign is going to change. Using whole sign houses, there's a huge difference from one rising sign to another. And especially if the person has any sort of general vague, can establish any sort of vague time frame within a few hour time frame of what part of the day they were born, um, there's only going to be within a few hour time frame, maybe only two or three rising signs that occurred during that time. So immediately that narrows it down to only like two or three charts that you need to look at and compare for your initial starting point for doing the rectification. And so this becomes then sort of like a process of comparing essentially two or three different charts, and that's much more approachable. And then from there, you can sort of take it from there. And once you narrow down the correct rising sign, you can then narrow down the correct degree or attempt to, but it's it's setting that starting point first of the rising sign that's really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things we're we're still moving into the actual like technical part of this but there's one last sort of quasi non-technical thing which is establishing the evidence for the rectification by talking with the client so your primary data for doing any sort of rectification is the known characteristics and events in the client's life so far and some of these are going to match natal placements um others are going to be tied into timing techniques so when it comes to this, you run into some issues that we've already touched on. One of them is that the client's clear perception of their own life is a major variable. Um, other variables connected with that are, you know, do they have a good memory? Do they have good records for when certain events happen in their life? Um, are they a reliable narrator for their own life or not? Can they be objective when they're talking about their own life or how objective, let's say, can they be? Since we all, you know, are, are sort of subjective, but there's maybe some people are able to step outside of their life, or maybe there's certain parts of our life that we're able to step outside of and be objective about more than others. Uh, so, so much of what you do really depends on accurate reporting on the part of the client. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and uh, it's it's like another one of those like astrologer nightmares. I've gotten clients who say, "I, I would." like a rectification, but I have a really bad memory. <laughs> like, oh no, you know? Right. <laughs> um, and I then I, you know, go to, I mean, that my first response internally is, oh no, but then I go to, okay, well then before we ever talk, just scour your records, your emails, your diaries, your, you know, and like try to find dates for things. Yeah. Yeah. And some clients will, you know, be great and have like a diary where they've written down like every event that's ever occurred in their life and like what they had for lunch at a pizzeria in Manhattan in like 1992, whereas there's other clients that couldn't tell you, you know, what they did last week or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or will remember it wrongly and report it wrongly. Sure. So much of it depends on accurate reporting on the client. You need to, this is where the whole investigative sort of Columbo type aspect of doing um, 
is Columbo, that's not like a, a relevant reference, pop culture reference in like 2018, is it? Is there like an equivalent? What's the investigative equivalent in 2018? I don't know. Uh, Sherlock? Sherlock. Like Benedict that's a, the 18, 18th century. Oh, that, that Sherlock. Okay. I was thinking yeah. you're like referring to like 18th century, 19th century. <laughs> I mean, being... uh, this is the first one. Um, or uh, Luther, you know, that's on Netflix with okay. Idris Elba. He plays like a cop i think i haven't actually seen that show but it looks good all right let's go with let's go with sherlock and either the robert downey jr version or the benedict cumberbatch version of essentially what we're doing here and a lot of this is going to depend on your ability to ask good questions as a sort of investigator and to craft mm-hmm. questions that will elicit responses that are going to be helpful because you might craft some questions that actually aren't going to be helpful. And there's other questions that might actually elicit like a really good response that's going to be useful for you in comparing, let's say, the two or three rising signs that you have in the best case scenario where you have like a just two or three to compare. Um, So listen closely. This is one of the points you made, Lisa, that you have to listen really closely to their answers for subtle clues, right? Yeah. I mean, so it's the question and the listening both are really important. And when I first um, started doing rectification, I realized that pretty quickly is no one, even if you have astrological techniques at your disposal, no one really tells you which specific questions to ask. And so you have to kind of build that up yourself. And then when they answer, sometimes they will be like a little bit of a, they'll give you the actual answer. And then there'll be a little bit of a throwaway phrase or there'll be a little bit of a you know something uh oh and this you know and you might instead of ignoring that because it wasn't the main thing you first asked about might like follow that up with like follow-up questions like oh wait so what about that other thing and you kind of have to like go from there um i was telling patrick earlier that um when i do rectification i do kind of maybe half of it first with the kind of list of events before we even talk and then I will maybe do the other half talking with the client so that I can ask those kind of direct and follow-up questions and get information that I wouldn't have otherwise if we had not actually talked directly. And, you know, sometimes it's it'll be like something really subtle. It wouldn't have been something you thought to ask a question about. I can't think of an example right now, but I've, I know that I've had those where um, I'm like, oh, I would not have known that if we had not had this conversation. Yeah. Right. Had you not made that like offhanded comment that we then pressed on and then it turned out that there's mm-hmm. whole, this whole other area that was important about understanding the reality and the concrete circumstances of your life but that it wouldn't have been evident otherwise exactly and that can be you know something about their life in general or their personality it can be like an event that they forgot to list because it wasn't immediately coming up as important to them but then you think it's important um yeah so a variety of things like that it's um <laughs> Uh, it's kind of funny sometimes because I find usually that one way I'm able to kind of start narrowing things down is when I ask about um, some of the worst things in about their life because mm-hmm. those tend to really stick out. Um, right. You know, I wish it was you know could be more positive, but you know it. But it immediately grabs your attention, like okay, well, which house then is Saturn or Mars doing its thing in? You know, what what kind? You know, is this more of a Mars thing? Is it more of a Saturn problem? Like in in your life like what uh, you know those the kinds of questions so i find like questions about things which are like are about the hardest things about their life or the biggest mm-hmm. challenges they have are often very instructive about what possibilities um you know might uh you know there might be 
Definitely. And if you're going for a rectification, if you're on the other end of things, you have to kind of be up for that. Um, I think to get a good job done, you have to know that you can't be closed lip about your life because it's essential information. We're not just like asking gratuitously for you to <laughs> spill your guts about things that are personal or hard, but that it's really actually essential information. Right. It's like the one instance where it's okay to tell the astrologer everything about your life before they've said anything about your chart. It's like the reverse right. of an actual <laughs> natal consultation. Right. Although, I mean, that, obviously that's not always true since a natal consultation is actually more of a dialogue ideally, and that's when it's most effective. But it's funny how that's inverted with rectification, right? Uh, not just on the astrologer's part, but also on the client's part. Mm -hmm. All right. So so what we're doing, so the, the primary thing the astrologers, the investigator is doing at this point is you need to figure out what are some of the major events that have already occurred in the life of the individual and specifically what makes the most most useful thing perhaps i would say is what makes their life distinct from other lives in general and we run into a really problematic point here that constantly frustrated me doing consultations which is that people normalize their experiences and they sort of generalize them and assume that once they've had certain experiences in their life because they grow to accept and and sort of uh, be okay with that or just understand that that's part of their life, whether it's a good event or whether it's a bad event. Everybody, for some reason, has this innate tendency to just assume that it's the same in everyone else's life. And this causes a real issue because then they don't recognize oftentimes or sometimes the things that are unique about their life that are not true. And that actually becomes your job as the astrologer to, when they're recounting these things, to push further sometimes in order to get them to draw out and to explain some of those parts in their life in more detail. And that's when you have to figure out what are the unique things about this person's life, because sometimes they will not be things that the person themselves actually recognizes is unique. Definitely. Like I've seen that with inheritances in particular, um, you know, and wherever you locate in the chart as far as what's what's going on with that. But those are the kind of things in life where if you get an inheritance, you might think everyone gets an inheritance, right. but they not have everyone like does. Jupiter in a day chart in the eighth house, and they think everybody yeah. everybody gets like a million dollars. Like like right. who who is like Lisa Marie Presley turned twenty five years 25. old mm -hmm. and the day she turned twenty five, she moved into a second house perfection year and she has Jupiter in the second house and it became activated and she has the ruler of the second and the eighth house. So she has all these like specific combinations for that very unique thing. And then the day she turned 25, she inherited like millions of dollars from the state of her father, who was Elvis. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a really striking example, obviously. But I think people often um, overlook it as something unique in their life when it's not as extreme, but it's still something that's not true for everyone. And so I've seen, for instance, inheritance of property. Like, oh, you know, I inherited this condo that's fully paid off or this house or whatever, and I live in that now. Well, that's not true for everyone. It's true for some people, you know, but it's like one piece of information where you can be like, oh, okay. So even though this person isn't fully satisfied with this area of their life, they've still been given something that not everyone is given. And so that's just one kind of example of things that are common enough that people can overlook, but are still useful information if you can find that out from them. Sometimes I try to, sometimes I'll, I'll ask people to think about writing, like, uh, thinking about how a biographer might approach, like, their life. Like, you know, if you, if you read a lot of biographies, you'll see, like, how they may kind of break people's lives into discrete chunks. This works especially well for Sadako releasing, where um, it's usually, but in terms of location, for example, I, I won't give any 
personal details beyond general ones, but um, I had a client who her pers- her uh, Zadok releasing periods broke down. Um, the major periods coincided with places that she'd lived. So, and she thought of her life in that way too. Like, oh, those are my Paris years, and then I move. You know, oh, and then I moved to L.A. and those are the like the Los Angeles years. Mm-hmm. And when those were done, you know, then I moved to Minnesota and. Like that was like that period of my life. So it was defined by the places that she was. And mm-hmm. in a biographer, you know, if someone trying to make a movie of your life or write a book about your life, they'd probably like organize the book in that way as well. Like, well, those were, you know, this is the Paris section and this is the Los Angeles section and this is the Minnesota section. So uh, sometimes it's difficult for everyone to do that like objectively. And again, you have to kind of, you're, you're going to listen to what they're telling you, but also read through the lines and see what they're not intending to tell you mm-hmm. with what they say. Definitely. Um, right. like, so, so again, be, all those sleuthing skills. That can be a useful thing maybe then to tell for clients to do or prospective people that are trying to rectify their chart is to try to write a, a, an outline or a biography for yourself. It doesn't need to be like, you don't need to write like pages that you know are over the top in terms of you're not going for literary quality here. You're going for like in this date or in this week or in this month, I moved, you know, to a different country or something like that. Or in this month, I went started going to a different school. Or I was. What's fi- the broad strokes of your life? What are the what's the overall shape? You know, of how things have have happened. Like I think that mm-hmm. those can be very um, instructive, especially with like the major periods on Sadako releasing from Fortune or Spirit. Um, there's those can be very interesting. Yeah. And it's um, like, I don't want to get too technical here right? since we're still coming up from the the beginning yeah. and, the, and the very basics. But um, so, so it's like, that would be really useful to have that. There is a probably line there. There's an issue in there between having not enough detail versus having too much detail. Like there can be instances where somebody's giving you way too much detail or they're going way over the top about things that might not necessarily be important or, maybe they're just writing too much. Like you as the astrologer can't read like a 500 page book about this person's life. You need kind of the cliff notes version of the highlight reel, basically. What are the most important events in like a bullet point format, probably ideally. What would, what would make it onto the Wikipedia article about you? Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Right. And the- yeah. Uh, and not one of those like really long obnoxious yeah. articles about somebody <laughs> that's really famous, but Let's say somebody. I love I love the I love it when on Wikipedia it says like this article is too long like right. <laughs> where it says like this article has too much information mm-hmm. like yeah um yeah so let's see so document clients good idea to document your life don't go over the top uh there was some other point in there that I meant to mention but I I think I just lost it so we'll move on so. One of the things we're getting to here from a technical standpoint is that it becomes really useful from a basic technical standpoint when you're just looking at the chart still and you're trying to establish the rising sign and the other houses and the house placements for each of the planets to really start focusing on the 12 houses, the topics that um, are associated with them, especially in terms of different concrete areas of your life, and to try to really narrow it down to a set of uh, concrete areas that each house relates to so that you would know the difference between a planet being in one house versus another. And here, especially, I think it becomes really useful to focus on the benefics and malefics. And I think that's what you were starting to say, Patrick, because 
that's how you identify like the areas of the life where things will tend to go more smoothly or more the person might tend to be more fortunate or other areas where the person might tend to encounter more challenges or setbacks or sometimes hardships. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, and especially if you have maybe half of the day, if you know at all whether they were born, you know, during the daytime when the sun was out versus at night, you can particularly use that. Or even if you don't know that, you can use those two things in conjunction, use the concept of sect, whether you're born during the day or night, with the benefic and malefic distinction, because that gives you what in theory at least should be the best and worst areas of someone's life or the area that is the most challenging for them versus the area that is most fortunate. And of course, you know, I would like follow up very quickly with saying like, there's always or often times anyway, there are mitigations that alter that and make that less completely clear. But it's a really good place to start. And sometimes someone could be born close to sunrise or sunset and then there's some uh, considerations can become ambiguous again hashtag astrologer nightmares um that's that's a that's a new t-shirt i'll take 50 percent of your profits for that Uh, so uh yeah the the sect is definitely a good way to i'm gonna write down that um, hashtag by the way let's actually start that astrologer that's going to be even more popular than uh, Joe Gleason's hashtag. What was it? It was, it was uh, like actual, actual astrologer life or something culture. like that. Okay. Uh, hashtag astrologer nightmares. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's see. What what else? Um, so houses. I mean, that's a huge one. I mean, so, yeah. yeah. Houses and For sects, t- especially. I mean, that's that was mm-hmm. my first I think one of it's my- unfortunate though when someone is born at night and you're working with a 24 hour period because you don't know if it's the night before um the morning like or the mm-hmm. night after right the sunset yeah like before sunrise there's like there's like two sunset. chunks of night you have to deal yeah. with because of the way we measure you know when a day begins you know right. it begins at midnight as opposed to at sunrise so right but let's say let's just assume for our sake for the sake of our sanity that we're dealing with an example where we know the person was born either during the day or at night. Um, one of the the shortcuts that you can use right from the start, and this is a shortcut that I talk about constantly in electional astrology and in natal astrology, but it is also very useful here, is just that for people that were born during the day, generally speaking, and other factors aside, the planet Jupiter tends to be the most positive planet, and the planet Mars tends to be the most negative or challenging planet, let's say. And for people that were born at night, the most positive planet tends to be Venus, and the most challenging planet tends to be Saturn. And so right away, that gives you two planets that you really want to focus the majority of your energy on and seeing what houses they would be placed in depending on the different rising signs, and then start checking to see if they actually in their lived experience have had either very positive events or very negative events happen in those areas of their life that match those house placements. So um, why don't we talk about some, just give some basic house significations. I've sort of written down a list here, but maybe you guys can help me with this. So first house, um, basic significations, the character, the physical body, and the appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. One's essential vitality, the modus operandi, So the MO. So differences there, let's say, um, you know, Mars there in a, in a day chart I, I delineated earlier is like somebody maybe that had a potential injury at some point to the body to the extent mm-hmm. that the first house deals with the body or 
perhaps if it's more being associated with the character, maybe there's somebody that are more that's more brash or more um, assertive or aggressive or what have you. Um, I mean, yeah. And as far as physical appearance, that would be like um, you know, uh, cuts, burns, scars. You know, all those sort of mm-hmm. Mars type significations. Also, tattoos. I mean, tattoos are probably more, much more common now. But if they kind of have a more like intimidating or um, kind of aggressive or fiery appearance, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's sort of uh, you know indicated by by Mars on the in, in the first, right? Or like uh, even sometimes like reddish. Like if you can see them, mm-hmm. um, if they right. look a little bit more reddish or they have red hair, you know, that's not foolproof, but it's one thing. Right. The other yeah, thing is, another... you know, if if someone was really brash and had Mars in the first, and that's how it was being expressed you it's another sort of reiteration of like you wouldn't know that unless you talk to them directly versus you know just got a a list of dates so some of that is really important in terms of having that interaction and then kind of soberly perceiving how they're coming off initially to you yeah like what your perception of the person is and what some of your initial yeah perception of the person is and another thing yeah oh sorry good good oh i was just gonna say that one tricky thing with uh, any planets conjunct the ascendant or on an angle is that it will be difficult to use transits to tell, you know, if it's hitting an angle versus just making an aspect to that planet. And the other, the reason I bring that up is because if you have, for example, if you have Mars on the ascendant, um, not only is it going to be giving you a general signification for like Marsy type things to do with your appearance and um, things like that, but it's also going to be importing the significations of the houses that it rules. Mm-hmm. So those can be brought to the forefront. So also, so Mars also brings, you know, whatever houses um, uh, have Aries and Scorpio in them. Um, right. Uh, it, you know, whatever, relative to whatever um, rising sign you're considering. Right. So, right. Well, and that's going to be an issue with all of the houses. Also yeah. in terms of evaluating you know the the placements but also the rulers which gets into how this gets complicated yep yeah Yeah. so this gets really complicated really quickly but let's (laughs) real quick (laughs) let's establish some just basic significations that people can use as a baseline Mm -hmm. because one of the issues is especially in the modern text like there's just people give so many significations for the houses that you really lose track of what some of the fundamentals are, are or what some of the most basic significations are that you yeah. should expect. Not every to see. house could be about transformation, Deborah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I didn't mean that by the Deborah holding. I was the Deborah holding. I was just using Deborah as like a generic name. Sure, or Chelsea, Stephen, <laughs> <Yeah>. Steve. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. So. Uh. So, so second house. First house. Second house. So, yeah. Um. Finances. Possessions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sometimes, often, very literally. Uh. Third Mid- house. Or go ahead. Yeah. Did you have one? Oh yeah, I was gonna say yeah. Uh, notions of material value. Um, uh, I mean, that starts getting yeah, into stuff, the more. Yeah. I mean that that is relevant. The more subjective. But it starts yeah. getting into the more subjective thing. Like I want yeah. to look mm-hmm. if I see yeah. Saturn in the second house, I start asking the person you about. See, yeah. their, have you had yeah. any major financial setbacks? How do you feel about money? Is money a concern for you? And sometimes psychological stuff will come out. I mean, I had a client, and I used him as an example in my book where. I think he had like Capricorn rising and the ruler was Saturn in the second house in a night chart. And he grew up in the great depression and he did always have like concerns or fears surrounding money. And that was a psychological manifestation, even though later in life Mm -hmm. he did fine financially. And his wife was like, he's, he doesn't have problems with money, but he's a real penny, penny pincher. And he's very careful about how he spends his money because of being scarred when he was earlier about how he grew up in a very poor family. 
So you mm-hmm. get both like the psychological and the literal sort right. of things. I think um, Prince is it is it Prince Andrew? I think he has Sagittarius rising with Jupiter and Capricorn in the second. So Jupiter ruling the first house in the second house, and he um, he uh, he likes to make furniture, and then he became like an auctioneer. Mm. So like mm-hmm. this, you know, Jupiterian figure with his old stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. selling it and getting it sold. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, sometimes that's just really just concrete ways sure mm-hmm. or or the opposite end where again the lisa marie presley example where she had jupiter in a day chart right. in the second house inherited like millions of dollars um from her from her father so mm-hmm. second house um third house literal manifestation siblings travel education um any mm-hmm. others that you guys would add sometimes writing people have written books um mm. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. We can move the, on because I didn't yeah, want to linger on this communicative it stuff. Ways. If they do communicative stuff, yeah. Sure. Um, um, oftentimes, uh, people with like you know, central and the third, I, I find uh, you know they be like bike riding or like racing or um, uh, you know, um, I think you have that example about um, Elliot, Elliot Smith. Uh, oh, there's the Elliot Smith one here where he drives in the car. Uh, also, the um, Evil Knievel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> doing the yeah. uh you know uh, short trips you know right. that's what he's, what he's known for like yeah. what it was yeah. like the ruler Across of the, the third and then the eighth the ruler of the third and the tenth and the eighth i think that it was uh, yeah. what it was oh was it, i thought it was aquarius rising with saturn and aries in the third yeah oh no you're, so, i mean it's you're, not gonna you're right actually i need to look that up i'm actually spacing it out I, I always remember another one one of my favorite examples is george lucas who had mars in the third in, he was born around sunrise, but I think in what may have been a day chart, and he was famously he was in a Mars perfection year. Mars is activated as a time lord, and it uh, actually conjoined the ruler of his ascendant. But that Mars third house placement, he was famously involved in like a major car accident where he almost died, and he mm-hmm. was like this close to death. But then he survived and decided that he didn't want to race cars anymore and went on to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing with with the thing with the third house that at least like in terms of if you're trying to like lock onto something that you can really say okay this is like really third house issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean the the sibling thing isn't always like literally like your your real sibling. So for example, Walt Disney, you know, he was born with Virgo rising with Mercury and Scorpio in the third, mm-hmm. and his brother Roy Disney was like the he had this lifelong business partnership with his brother who helped manage the financial aspect of his. You know his business, the Disney Empire. Um, but then you also have another um, person with the exact same configuration, John Cleese, Virgo rising, Mercury and Scorpion the third, who you know his life was revolving around um, you know being in like comedy troops and writing with like these friends. That that's how he like kind of distinguished himself was through these friendships he had where they did you know these funny uh, skits and things. So his brothers, you know, in a sense. Same thing with uh, Ringo Starr and uh, George Harrison. You know that they had rules of the first and the third, and they are most you know sort of associated with like the the brothers they had in a sense, the siblings, their their band, their gang, as it were. Mm-hmm. Anyway, right. So Brother, that's sort brotherhood of things, or sisterhood, that, brotherhood, sisterhood. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. The people who do driving things, like taxi drivers, bus drivers, sometimes have third house things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the George Lucas example is problematic because that was a one-time event in his life. It was a major event that stands out in his timeline, but it was something that occurred to him when he was 18 and completely changed the course of his life. 
but that's another, you know, it's something I come back to over and over again on the podcast because it's incredibly frustrating from a research standpoint is that there's some indications in the birth chart that can just be one-time things. And there's mm-hmm. other indications that can be more persistent or more continuous or can repeat, you know, more frequently. And you need to be careful that you're not always looking for something that's a constant thing. I mean, this is something that happened in George Lucas's life, what, like 50 years ago or something like that. So if he if you're he's a client and you're trying to rectify his chart and he's only talking about what happened last week, um, you know, you might have an issue there because you really need to focus and be able to identify sometimes one-time events that were significant. Mm-hmm. And that were unique because not everybody's had like a major. That's an example of a unique event where not everybody's made had a major car accident that was like life threatening where they almost died, and so that sort of justifies the Mars in the third house potentially in a day chart placement. All right, so third house, fourth house, um, parents, your home, mm-hmm. your living situation. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Good. Fifth, fifth house, children. Um, is a re- really primary, really tangible one. Sometimes, oftentimes, that means your children, but sometimes it can be like the topic of children in general mm-hmm. comes up. I know, Lisa, you have a famous example that you first pointed out to me of Judy Bloom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, children's author, or I see teachers sometimes who deal with a lot of children, or some you know people who have professions where they deal with children or something right. around children, right? Uh- J.K. Rowling, you know, she told us that she's an Aquarius rising. We didn't have an exact degree, but she did say she was an Aquarius rising. Oh, she rising. did? We know her we, rising sign now? She said, yeah, on Twitter, she said Aquarius rising. What? And I didn't so know what's that. funny about that is, um, uh, what's funny about that is that she is the ruler of, um, I think it's the ruler of her midheaven is Jupiter in the 11th, and it's in the fifth house of children. So nice. in Gemini. Children's so books. Ju- exactly. Um, <laughs> I think that that might be Judy mm-hmm. Bloom as well. She has like a stellium there. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if one of them was the ruler of the tenth. Anyway, yeah, I've seen that. I've also seen like children's advocates that have like major fifth mm-hmm. house placements connected with career and other things like that. Um, yeah. Sometimes though, it can be other things. If the placements are more difficult, it can be like the loss of a child that was like mm-hmm. a major event in the person's life or or something traumatic or what have you. Oh, yeah, but sometimes also, oh good. Oh, I was just going to say, sometimes people who've had um, either a number of miscarriages or um, abortions, like sometimes there'll be something difficult in the fifth house, even if they don't have actual children at this point. Right. Um, yeah, I think there's also, uh, the, but there is also these connotations of the fifth house with, with um, you know, fertility and, and, and recreation, entertainment, the sort mm-hmm. of fun, leisurely areas of life. So that's sort mm-hmm. of another... Um, uh, kind of a uh, locus of the fifth house and performative arts, creative yeah. arts. Um, I see a lot of like actors and musicians have things related yeah. to the fifth things people create. Mm-hmm. Right? This sort of fits in the fifth. And so that's children yeah. as well as artistic things. Right. right. Um, okay. So fifth house, sixth house, um, illness, illnesses, injuries, work, subordinates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, your you they can also be like your employees like anyone who's in service to you right. but also the ways in which you are of service to someone else and in that kind of subservient role to someone mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. or someone like who deals with like um people who are serving in general like i have a funny um my dad has placements in the sixth and he really likes to talk to wait staff like in all restaurants that he goes to (laughs) like and it's like it sounds weird but it's like actually a notable 
like constant in his life that he interesting would, as well as talking lots and lots about employ his employees because he does have a business right um the uh the olsen twins have mars in the sixth house and so um they've come under fire for the fact that uh children in third world countries have made their clothes uh they came under a lawsuit from their interns who are working for their company mm. um saying they weren't being you know treated fairly or compensated fairly so uh yeah it's a Something that uh, you see with with uh, uh, the sixth house as well, mm-hmm. right? Or or the the boss or the, like the small business owner who's had like a bad employee that like ruined their life for some reason, right? Right. All right. Um, or conversely, you have the other end of the spectrum where you have people like um, Steve Jobs who has some heavy sixth house placements and both sort of gained a lot or 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 you know. Um, became a big figure partially through the work that some of his subordinates did, but also was like notoriously not very nice to his, his subordinates. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah. the, but it could be sometimes like positive things that come from people that work from you. I guess that was the part point of that. I was trying to give like a positive mm-hmm. example. Right. I mean, just generally when there's an emphasis there or some sort of rulership that's important from the sixth house, it's like either work or health is like a more prominent issue in that person's life than average. Right. Um, all right, seventh house relationships, partners. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can be business partners or personal partners, although it certainly comes up more often in most people's lives, the personal partners. But um, it can also be business partners or like important one on one things like your lawyer, or, you know, things where you, you have like one person who or kind of works directly with you. Someone you have to work with. Yeah. You know, someone who you, yeah, like it's not, and usually that. That always that will usually come up with someone that you're in a relationship with, but uh, it also like a romantic relationship. But uh, it also yeah comes out in some of those other um, engagements where you're. I almost wonder if it's like the house of frenemies, like the the people who are kind of like your not your rival, but also like someone you just kind of can't seem to get rid of your your opposite your mm-hmm. um yeah your polarity. Yeah, I've seen it also with um, people who do a lot of either client work or um, like customer service work where they talk to many, many people over and over and they have a lot mm. of like direct um, one-on-one interactions. So sometimes, um, yeah, I've, I've seen that in their work. Yeah. Ther- uh, most recent example. Oh, I've seen oh, a yeah, lot of therapists, therapists have like mm-hmm. ruler of the 10th and the 7th. Definitely. Yeah. Rule of the 10th and the 7th. Yeah. Counselors, yeah. Uh, marriage counselors, especially. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to mention uh, a recent example I've been uh, looking at is uh, John Lennon, who was born with Mars in Libra, ruling his Aries Ascendant in the 7th. So he has the ruler of the Ascendant, uh, Mars, in his 7th house of Libra. And of course, a conventional interpretation of that aspect would be, um, you know, potential troubles on account of or because of like one's partner mm-hmm. and um you know uh yoko has <laughs> definitely um you know she's been blamed for the breakup of the beatles and you know the a lot of the other band members like, didn't like her and he kind of uh you know that's you know his, his whole uh, peace activism was with you know his his partner and one of the other unfortunate um uh, potential uh, outcomes of that position is like, you know, potential like sort of violence right. towards one spouse, you know, with Mars mm-hmm. and that. And unfortunately that is true of John Lennon who, um, you know, was abusive towards uh, both of his wives. So right. um, it is, so 
I mean, that, and that's <laughs> yeah, actually that, a tricky thing that comes up sometimes right. when talking to the client is realizing when sometimes that comes up when the the malefic itself is the ruler of the ascendant because then it's like the client sometimes not all the time but sometimes can take on the agency of the malefic and that is an issue because sometimes you'll realize when they're talking or maybe you won't realize at all that they're sometimes the one that's causing the problem in that area of their life or or is manifesting the malefic energy and that can be difficult to tease out because the subjective the subjectivity issue comes in where they may not realize that they're the one that may be causing problems in that area of their life for some reason right in any case the seventh house is definitely yeah related to that part of one's life right mm-hmm. Yeah, we need. I didn't get mean to get stuck on this section, but we should probably move on because we still have a bit more to cover. Um, yeah. So, uh, eighth house, literal manifestations, death, other people's money, taxes, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Ninth house, religion, travel, foreign stuff, including foreign people and foreign countries, education, uh, astrology, also as a side note. Tenth house, career, reputation, mainly. 11th house, friends, groups, alliances, 12th house, enemies, loss. Any other 12th house stuff you guys want to add? Mm, sometimes people who have chronic illness, it goes there. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, monastics, not that that comes up very often in rectification, but, you know, pe- so, although sometimes people have like retreat experience or, you know, things where they go away for some reason. Yeah, isolation. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, yeah. we don't have to expand on that. So okay. it's funny we spent like I'm trying to think of it some examples, but uh, yeah, we, we got to move on. Three hours later, in our short like treatment of the houses, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so as you can tell at this point, uh, knowledge of natal astrology is really the foundation of rectification. So your ability to rectify a chart rests on your understanding of natal astrology, and you have to know what you would expect from one of the house placements from one house placement versus another. So it's like, what kind of manifestations archetypally would you expect to see of Mars in the first house versus Mars in the second house? Because if you don't know what to expect or what some of the possible manifestations of those two placements are, then you're not going to be able to choose between them. So that's part of it. Um, in addition to that, as like a subset of that, the ability to be flexible and to see how different placements are manifesting for the individual, where you might already have some preconceived notion about how certain placements might manifest, but being open enough and flexible enough to realize that this person's describing something and they're actually describing a manifestation of that placement that you've never seen before. And mm-hmm. that's something that you get used to eventually as a consulting astrologer, because one of the biggest secrets in astrology is that every astrologer learns something new every client they see. I'm not sure if that's actually a big secret, actually, in all reality, but it is actually a truism, even of the oldest or the you know wisest astrologers, because every natal chart in every person's life represents a, a, a unique manifestation of the potential placements or a unique combination of planetary placements. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then finally, it's not just about house placements. So, that's definitely the starting point, and that's the easiest thing to focus on first. Also, need to pay attention to the rulers of the houses and what planets, what houses each planet is ruling in the chart because they're going to import topics over from one house into another. Uh, so, you have to be careful then about overlapping indications 
Uh, and that's when things start getting really tricky because you realize that there can be from different perspectives, like different charts could indicate similar things when things start to overlap. Right. Like you can have like with one rising sign, the ruler of the 11th and the 12th, and then the next rising sign is like the ruler of the 12th and the 11th. And there's a lot of things like that where it won't necessarily distinguish very clearly at all um, that particular uh, area of their life, at least. Others may not overlap at the same time, but that that's pretty common that things like that happen. Yeah, which is in turn one of the most frustrating things about rectification is those overlapping things. And that, again, brings us full circle back to the point about it being speculative is that ultimately the astrologer ends up making a judgment call that it's one over another. And sometimes that judgment call, you know, there it's a judgment call. I mean, it's not an immutable, like, law that they have found, like the exact chart, but instead they're trying to add up all of the things and make a, a call about where it all lands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not, it, not ready for Astro Data Bank. Right. Not right. Astro Data Bank. Not, not double <laughs> yeah. A data. Probably lower, yeah. somewhere lower, whatever is below double A data. Yeah, and in addition to the benefic malefic that we were talking about using the sect and and house placements of those, um, the um, ruler of the ascendant is super um, important as well. Like one of the first things. I don't know if you wanted to. I wanted to talk about that more. I don't know if you were yeah, there yet. Just one one more thing okay. before we sure. we get there. Um, getting started doing rectification. One of the notes I think that you wrote down, Lisa, that was really important because it's crucial to how all three of us practice. Um, it's one of the things we take for granted in the actual practical details of doing rectifications as well as electional work and a lot of other things is having the ability to animate the chart really speeds up the process of doing rectification. And you don't have to do mm-hmm. that. Like you can just cast charts on astro.com for each of the like two or three rising signs or 12 rising signs or, you know, hundred different charts for each degree that's possible. Uh, you could do theoretically, but it's so much quicker to have Solar Fire or some similar program where you can a- use the animate chart feature and like move it forward in different increments of time, like move it forward by minutes or move it forward by hours or jump move back and forth between two rising signs or three rising signs really quickly, and that's super super helpful as like a basic starting point, practically speaking. Definitely. And I can't yeah. really imagine at this point doing rectification without having that tool, at least, you know, not anywhere near as quickly. You could, in theory, print out like on paper a chart for like 12 different rising signs and do that. But yeah, definitely if you have an animate feature, you're going to use it for this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super useful. Um, you, They actually gave me a promo code. You can get a 15% discount on Solar Fire that's special to the Astrology Podcast by using the promo code AP15. Uh, on the when you basically when you buy solar fire at their website which is alabe.com so uh yeah this is super useful doing the animate feature in order to figure out the time frame when you're trying to narrow down the rising sign and being able to switch back and forth and also watch the ascendant degrees move back and forth or the midheaven degrees and the other angles move back and forth uh and a number of other things so here we finally get to birth chart placements to pay attention to and like some of the core things that when you start looking at the charts what you what you really want to look out for in terms of what the changes are that you're comparing in terms of your different perspective birth times so what the basic question you have to ask yourself is what changes during the course of the time frame that you have to work with if you know for example that let's say the person was born between 9am and 
12 p.m. or something like that, like let's say a three-hour time frame, um, what are the things that change? So the rising sign, what are the different rising signs you have to work with? What is the quality of the rising sign? What are the planets in that sign, as we've talked about already? The next one you want to pay attention to is the planet ruling the ascendant. So what's the, especially for us, we're using the traditional rulership scheme. What's the planet that rules the rising sign? What is its condition in the chart? And what uh, sign and house is that planet placed in in the chart as a huge, huge factor in terms of especially indicating a major topic or a major area of the person's life that will become part of the focus or that will stand out in some way in their life. Mm-hmm. So that's a big one mm-hmm. that you guys both have used as well that you, I've sort of cut both of you off at different points about wanting to talk about earlier in the show. Right, because it's so primary. that That's kind of what you naturally first start thinking about. Right. Um, and that's actually how I started doing rectification. Um, it was kind of like accidental. I knew all of the same tools and techniques that I use now for that, but I hadn't actually been trying to formally do it or like put it out there. Um and I was like working on a blog article and um, the person had this topic of religion being like super important in her life. And I didn't see it. And she said, oh, my mom told me this time. And I just did not see it. And um, I was like, are you sure that this is the right time? And um, then she ended up, well, I started fiddling with the chart. Well, she was like, I'll go try to talk to my dad. I think he might have my birth certificate. And so um, I was like fiddling with the rising signs in the meantime and looking at in particular which planet ruled each rising sign if you moved it either a few hours earlier or a few hours later and where what house that would be placed in. And I realized that if she was born just a few hours earlier, that the ascendant would be ruled by Jupiter, which is naturally associated with re- religion and also placed in the ninth house. It was kind of like a double whammy. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't normally second guess people's times, but... And then she calls me back later and she said, I got a hold of my dad and he has my birth certificate. And it was actually three hours earlier. <laughs> and so I was very excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, and that's what actually got me started with rectifying, even though it was kind of accidental because I realized, oh, I actually have these tools already that do show these kind of concrete emphases. Um, you just use them backwards. Right. Once you get good enough with the, the basic fundamentals of natal astrology, you can use that to reverse engineer a chart. Right. And so, and so the basic point we're talking about is that wherever the ascendant ruler is placed by house and also by the general significations of what the quality of that planet is, um, that should have something kind of lastingly to say about that person's life. It should be an area that's either more important to them um, or it's, um, it's just something that stands out in their life compared to most people or, or things like that. It should be an area of emphasis in one way right, or another. It's distinctive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gives you like uh, at least a few archetypes to kind of choose between, you know, like if you know, if you're choosing between like Scorpio, Sagittarius and Capricorn rising, then you kind of get to decide, okay, are they, are they a Mars in Gemini? If they're, Are they a Scorpio rising Mars in Gemini type person or are they a Sagittarius rising with Jupiter and uh, Pisces type person or are they a Saturn and are they a Capricorn rising Saturn and Aries type person? Like mm-hmm. that gives you three different houses, three different um, planetary natures, three different characters, essentially three different archetypes, you know, of the 144 different combinations of ascendant rulers to figure out like which one are they more like. And in that particular example, I mean, that's going to be 
clearer to tell. I mean, because a uh, you know a Mars type, I mean Mars, Saturn, Jupiter are very distinct, you know, from each other. So right, and it gets a um, little tricky in terms of like doing can. character analysis with that. But sometimes, if you're even just looking at like the topics the associated topic. with the house. Sometimes it's right. just very literal manifestations where exactly. if it's just a choice between two rising signs and you've got one where the ruler of the ascendants in the eighth house and you've got one where the ruler of the ascendants in the seventh house and let's say the client's like, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm a, I had one client once actually that was like this where they were a mortician and they worked with the dead and that was actually, they grew up and that was like their lifelong aspiration was being a mortician and they ended up doing it and it became a lifelong career uh might lean towards ruler of the ascendant in the eighth house and and the topic of death actually being for some reason distinctive in their life or patrick earlier you were using the example of uh john lennon who has the ruler of the ascendant in the seventh house and so if you didn't know this person you could just say well there may be something distinctive about the topic of relationships in this person's life and that would be a true statement, I think, or that would be a fair statement about his life, right? Absolutely. Sure. So that comes up with just about all the houses. So it's a nice, very, very useful starting point. And it's one of the first things all three of us look to when we're comparing different rising signs is what house is the ruler of the ascendant placed in. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those areas where you do have to sometimes ask probing questions, because sometimes on the one hand, it'll be really obvious that that's an area of emphasis, and it will be obvious to them as well as you. Um, if it's you know something they do for work, like you said, the mortician or things like that, um, or like a really important hobby to them. But sometimes, particularly if it's a more difficult placement, um, it will be an area of importance, but it won't necessarily be something that they're like consciously thinking about as like important to them because they're thinking things that are good in my life or things that are, you know, important in that way. And some, so sometimes you kind of have to tease out like, oh, but this is still an important area. It's just a hard one, you know? So you have to kind of think in terms of which planet is representing that as well. Right. That they'll take you to mean something that they that you don't like that it's supposed to be either yeah. a very positive area or a very negative area but it's the opposite or yeah different things like that mm-hmm. it can be really subtle yeah i mean i mean sometimes it can hit you in the face and then other times it can be very subtle like it i remember one client i had it was it was difficult to decide like you know which planet ruled the center i mean it was only between like two or three uh, options, but I mean, eventually, I it kind of was able to tease out that like one major thing they were doing was gambling, mm-hmm. and uh, with Virgo rising, they had Mercury in the second, you know, and there's something they didn't necessarily think was that important, but they were kind of saying, well, you know, I'm doing this like online gambling to like, you know, this is what I kind of want to, you know, eventually be able to get away from my other job to do, and I'm kind of like, mm, I don't know. I mean, I think that Mercury and Libra in the second, like that, you know, that, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't something that I immediately thought of, you know, as far as, um, that placement, but, uh, but it seemed to fit what they were describing and it kind of took a while to kind of get to that. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's really crucial because they may not like recognize it as being as important as it is, or it doesn't necessarily need to be important, but it just needs to be distinctive. Like not everybody mm-hmm. does yeah. online gambling, and even if it's not like a super important right. thing to that person, it's a theme that's coming up in their life that's distinctive. 
And that's probably right. what's the most important. Well, because then it came out how, you know, before they got into gambling, they were really good with numbers and, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, and that this interest in numbers and being good with math and uh, things sort of led them to, you know, playing games. And uh, I mean, it was, I mean, ba- you know, that's what kind of mm-hmm. made me think, okay, I'm a little more confident now. Like this is, this is definitely Mercury now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we're definitely talking about a Mercury type person and it's being applied in this second house area. So. Right. Um, it's kind of like we were talking about before. Oh, I'm sorry. Are we done? No. It was no. kind of like what we were talking about before is also, especially with the Ascendant ruler, since it's so primary, being open to, you know, different unique manif- possible manifestations of those placements. We were, you know, that's true in general with all the house placements, but I would say really important with the Ascendant ruler or else you might discount something that's actually showing up there because you're not thinking about it in that way. Yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned Steve Jobs earlier, and I actually asked you about Steve Jobs' child because I I didn't quite understand how he was Mercury in Aquarius and Six. I would have expected as like the CEO of a big company that maybe had like a big, you know, tenth house emphasis or something. But you know, then you kind of explained to me, oh well, you know, I read his biographies and you know, like he has this more sixth house emphasis with this Mercury ruling the ascendant in the sixth, and uh, you know, it just made more sense <laughs> once you explained it to me. Um, so yeah, you have to, uh, think laterally and keep an open mind mm-hmm. too. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And I actually, just to do a plug for my book, have an entire chapter on the ruler of the ascendant in each of the 12 houses. So this is a topic I deal with in my book. Cause it's like a core component of Hellenistic astrology and which is just basic fundamental Western early natal astrology really placed a lot of emphasis on the ruler of the ascendant. And then I also have like a 10 hour lecture on it, I think, in my course on Hellenistic astrology. So if you want to learn more about that, do that. Patrick, I think you're working on a series or something connected with this soon. I yeah, I wanted to do a series on well, because I first did 10 different types of Aries and 10 different types of Taurus. And that was about Taurus Suns. It was kind of a video series geared at geared towards um, you know, teaching people who are unfamiliar with you know, more advanced astrology that, hey, there's something more beyond your sun sign. But then I got all these requests to you know talk about the ascendance. So um, what I've done is I have compiled basically a representative from each of the 144 ascendants. And I started a couple of the interviews. Uh, I have a lot to get through. Uh, <laughs> it's going to take a lot longer than I thought it was going to take. But really, basically, the idea is it's going to take you long. 144. Yeah. I want to yeah. do. I wanted. I want to talk about all 144 ascendant rulers with uh, not just examples from like popular culture, but also talking to people who have them. And um, right. and this was getting, like a light. You know, this was going to be a light weekend project or something. Yeah, originally. you know, I you know, I yeah. Originally, I mean, it kind of it kind of expanded and expanded and expanded, and because I, I realized that this is something that has to be kind of figured out because I mean, everyone has an ascendant ruler. And there has to be something archetypally similar, you know, between everyone who has, um, you know, Mercury and Libra and the second, like, um, uh, ruling the Virgo uh, first house. So yeah. uh, there has to be something that, like, kind of connects them. And even though there are all these different variations, there has to be something that is – there has to be some sort of through line. So I'm I'm hoping that through those interviews and, uh, you know, through the examples I've found so far – that um, I'll be able to kind of uh, have a resource available for everyone to kind of, you know, see more specifically, like what the, you know, uh, specific outcomes are kind of like for, 
each of the 144 ascendant rulers. So awesome. it's a massive project. Um, is it going to be <laughs> is videos on your YouTube channel or on your website? Yeah, th- those will be available. On, yeah, those will become available on my on my uh, on my YouTube channel. Okay, uh, Big Fat Astro Vlog. Got it. Okay. Um, cool. So moving on, let's like start cranking through some of the rest of this technical yeah. stuff. So planets ruling the ascendant, pl- the, the planet ruling the ascendant, um, the moon changing signs sometimes happens. So pay attention if during your time frame there's any sign changes with the moon. With uh, whole sign houses, this is going to change the house placement. It's also going to change. You want to look at what house the moon is ruling because it's going to import significations from whatever house it rules into the house it's placed in. So that'll give you two options if it does change, although that's kind of rare. Um, Sometimes even just looking at the quality of the sign placement can make a big difference. Like we talked about the Obama example previously and that early debate that astrologers had before his birth certificate came out about whether he seemed just from a character standpoint more like a Taurus moon or more like a Gemini moon. And yeah, it turned out Gemini moon. So connected with that, applying and separating aspects of the moon, sometimes that can change in different parts uh, of the day. So uh, that's something you can pay attention to. Is the moon like applying to difficult planets or is it applying to easy or positive planets? That's going to change things both in terms of the general significations of the moon and some of the character things, but also in terms of the house that it rules and the topics associated with that house. The sun and other planets can sometimes change signs, but this is less common so it can happen with the sun or mercury can sometimes be moving pretty quickly and can change signs over the course of a day. Yeah, I do have one ancient horoscope from like the 4th century where they were writing down the sign placements and then they were like Jupiter was in Leo during the one part of the day and it was in Virgo the other part of the day. So I could kind of like imagine them rolling their eyes about having to rectify the original that. hashtag astrologer nightmare. Right. <laughs> Chart rectification <laughs> nightmares. Um written in papyrus hashtag on papyrus yeah (laughs) so that stuff um we already talked about using the benefics and the malefics along with sect and how that's like really crucial as a useful central technique in addition to the ruler of the ascendant and just paying attention to the house placement especially of the most positive and negative planet you can also run into an issue there that i talk about a lot in my book and in my course where you can have the more constructive malefic, which is Saturn in a day chart or Mars in a night chart, where it's like, especially early in the person's life, it's like, yeah, they, they run into some challenges or some things come up, but it's usually not the worst case scenario. And it ends up being what I call uh, surmountable difficulties, where it's the cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type thing. Whereas the other malefic, the most difficult malefic in the chart tends to be the more difficult, like this is like major problems that are sometimes not surmountable in a certain area of the life. And being able to tell the difference between those two is really crucial and important, especially when talking to the client, because they themselves may not be able to make that sort of fine distinction. Um, Also true of the benefics. So Jupiter is still positive in a night chart, but it's not quite as positive as it could be. And Venus is still positive in a day chart, but not quite as positive as she otherwise could be. So being able to tell the difference there is also crucial. Okay, so that's some of the basic stuff just in terms of birth chart placements to pay attention to when rectifying a chart. There's a bunch of others we could get into, but those are probably some of the core ones that you really want to pay attention to. Um, After that, you can also get into, there's a whole other area of rectification, which has to do with timing techniques. 
And this is sort of like the second half of rectification where um, in my approach, and I think in all of our approaches, once you narrow down the possibility that the possibilities, that's when you can sort of start checking some of the timing techniques as the next sort of line of defense or of investigation in terms of figuring this out. So people tend to use the same timing techniques for rectification that they generally use just in general. I think this is a point that you made, right, Lisa? Yeah, because I've seen, I was looking around at books and things, and it's like some people will use secondary progressions and solar arc directions and things that I, you know, normally would not use for rectification, but that's also because I don't use them very often for natal work. And so, um, yeah, it's like you just see, and then there was another that did medieval techniques. So basically, whatever your whole toolboxes of the techniques that you use to apply to charts in general, you you will generally use for rectification as well. Yeah. So everybody basically just uses whatever their favorite pet technique is for in natal astrology. They also use that in rectification. There is probably a distinction we could make where there's probably some more sign-based techniques that are going to be useful as like first line of investigation in terms of timing techniques if they're focusing on just signs. So like annual perfections, for example, it counts one sign or one whole sign house per year uh, is pretty useful. You can also look at transits in this way uh, from a sign-based perspective where in whole sign houses, as soon as a planet moves into a new sign, it also moves into a new house. And this is super crucial in studying certain like not super outer planet transits, but like mid outer planet transits like Jupiter and Saturn because they tend to be very distinctive when they're going through certain houses in the chart. I think this is, is was this one of the points that you made, Patrick? Uh, yeah. Uh, I found Jupiter and Saturn tend to be really useful to use because, um, yeah, because their natures are so distinct, but also because they, um, they don't travel too fast or too slowly to be confused with something else that's happening. Right, you know, right. Something that's sort of transitory or, or, or more long-term. So You get like a, um, a year out of Jupiter going through each sign, and you get like two yeah. or three years out of Saturn going through each sign. Yeah, we and we've been lucky in insofar as, uh, you know, I've, for example, with certain clients have been able to compare, like I remember there was one client I had who I was, I couldn't use the, I couldn't use the ascendant as the sort of trigger degree because he there were there were planets in that sign that kind of made it difficult to isolate whether it was truly a transit happening to the ascendant or one of the planets. So I had a sign selected. So I had to use the midheaven degree in order to find what the precise degree might be. And they um they when they had Saturn go through Libra certain degrees in Libra, they, they they lost a job opportunity. And then when Jupiter was going through that same part of the Zodiac um, in, in 2015 in, in Libra, uh, they got a job opportunity. So I was able to tell, okay, well, all right, the MC is definitely in that part of the Zodiac. But the way, way I was able to kind of narrow it down to the degree was by seeing, you know, when specifically they lost the job with Saturn transiting through Libra and the degrees it was at at that at loss and then uh, comparing that to when they finally got the offer. But the interesting thing was is that with the Jupiter transit, they they like initially were about to like switch to this other job, this other job opportunity that came up, but then they decided against it. But then later on that fall, they decided to go ahead and do it again. And so I looked it up and I looked and it, and 
it coincided with the um direct station the retrograde station of jupiter like jupiter was just about to hit a degree but then it went back um and then it finally crossed it in uh later later that year right when it finally went you know direct past that degree and that was the same de- and the degree that it finally reached was the same degree that saturn was at when they had the job loss so i was like okay so that is the degree like when jupiter finally reached it they got the job opportunity when saturn was at that degree that was when they lost um the job opportunity so it it uh so saturn jupiter are really helpful in that way because jupiter tends to gen all things considered jupiter is more um uh, beneficial constructive tends to um promote growth right. or opportunities expansion saturn tends to deny yeah or constrict one's uh, options yeah that idea of um looking at jupiter as like cycles of expansion and just like expanding whatever house it's moving through or looking at saturn as constriction through whatever house it's moving through is really helpful because then if you're just paying attention to the whole sign houses you can identify like when is the first time that planet ingresses into that sign and then when is the date when that planet leaves the sign and then look for you end up with for jupiter like a one-year period or for saturn a two or three-year period and look for expansion or contraction in the house that that planet moved through during that time period and so if you know, um, I had a client um, where it was like Saturn was going through their fourth whole sign house and they were just having major issues with their living situation in their home for two or three years. And it perfectly coincided with starting as soon as Saturn ingressed into that house. And then the issues got wrapped up and were finished and stopped being a, a major point in their life as soon as Saturn leaved that whole sign house. And sometimes things are really simple like that or comes up in rectification all the time like saturn going through the first house is often very distinctive and i've had a bunch of several people where if it wasn't health problems it was like reporting losing weight um during saturn going through their first house over that two or three year period for different reasons and again just that basic archetypal principle of like contraction Mm -hmm. yeah and it is really useful, like you all said, um, that it, it's a kind of a, a mid-length period that you can look to, well, was this the condition during that period of time? But also definitely look at the ingresses, um, like the actual, did something coincide with when that planet ingressed into that sign slash house, which is again, you know, useful if you do use whole sign houses. I had one person I talked with recently who the very day they were Capricorn rising and the very day that Saturn went into Capricorn, um, they were like knocked out and I've had like um, kind of post concussion issues since. And so like sometimes it is, it's not always obviously, but sometimes the ingresses um, can coincide with an event, even if it's not a particular degree being heightened. What was that transit again? It was Saturn moving into Capricorn with a Capricorn rising chart, even though it wasn't early Capricorn rising. Oh yeah. And it was like right after that, they were actually, somebody just like punched them and, and they were knocked out and then had serious like neurological issues from that point forward. And it's happened like right after the ingress. It was the day of the ingress. Okay. So it was the first 24 hours of it going into the sign. Nice. Yeah. Ingresses are super important. I feel like we, the only way in which we really pay attention to them in modern astrology generally is like with an Aries ingress chart, but like the ingress is super important, but they can also be complicating in rectification if mm-hmm. the ascendant or the angle you're looking for is, you know, very close to the beginning of a sign or mm-hmm. near, very close to the end. Cause then you're not sure, like, was it just the ingress or was it actually, uh, you know, uh, hitting the, um, you know, the, the angle you're looking for. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, you still want to pay attention, even using whole sign houses. Like, I keep getting in this question over and over again where people don't realize that even when you're using whole sign houses, we're still paying attention to the degree of the angles. Um, and that includes right. all of the angles, not just the degree of the ascendant and descendant as being sensitive points of power, but also the, de the degrees of the quadrant MC or midheaven and the quadrant IC as being important points of power. And that like an ingress into, let's say, the rising sign, you will oftentimes start seeing first house matters start to become more prominent in the person's life at that time, but it may not culminate until it hits the exact degree of the ascendant. So that's one of the things that's both useful about paying attention to transits from a whole sign perspective, but it, it also adds some additional complications where it can be tricky because you need to make that distinction between the topic is active, but it's still building up and hasn't peaked yet, or the topic is actually peaking right now and it's perhaps hitting an angle or some sensitive point. Yeah, that's a great point. It, it that adds a whole other kind of um, overlay to the narrative. You know, if you have an ascendant late in the sign, then it's like the ingress will be kind of the lead up to this big moment when the planet finally crosses it. But if it's right at the beginning, then it's like some big event kind of kicks off this thing that you have to deal with, you know, for the duration of that transit through the sign. So, right. um, yeah, it sort of gives you a, a whole different picture of like how something's going to unfold. Or like if the person is still in the midst of it and they're like, no, that already happened. So it must be past, but it's like, well, if it, it hasn't peaked and hasn't hit the angle yet, you, you may have to like check in in like a, a few years and see how things went. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, transits, especially of Jupiter and Saturn through the high, through, through the signs, you can narrow that down through specific degrees. You can also pay attention to other outer planet transits sometimes like Uranus or Neptune, uh, but those are much more slow moving. And then you run into issues with the inner planets because they move so quickly, it's often difficult to narrow that down. Although sometimes you can use when some of the inner planets slow down, like a like a Venus retrograde period or a Mars retrograde period where it spends you know a good deal of time in a sign, sometimes those can coincide with significant events, but that can be tricky just because... Um, it, it takes more time to track that stuff than just glancing at like time periods indicated by Jupiter or Saturn. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I want to say um, about the outer planet transits. I mean, I think in general, they don't time things enough for me, but Uranus transits they, because they usually um, hit so exactly. Right. Like usually something because it's, it's about something kind of coming out of left field and like really startling you. And so I find that those are actually really quite exact timers, like when they hit even to the minute of things, the astrological minute. And so that's actually a useful one if it happens to be hitting something important during, you know, time periods you're looking at. Definitely. If they've lived long enough, Uranus can be really useful for figuring out like when it's crossed like an angular house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's usually f like more sort of obvious, but they have to have lived quite a bit you know if you if you have a can if you have a client in the 50s for example um you know you can use that because then they will have had at least you know three times in their life that uranus will have been going through uh, a sign uh sure. angular in their chart that, that was my but also even even if they're not as old like hard aspect hard transiting aspects to the moon or to the sun mm -hmm. like those can be really distinctive too yeah so that was my started studying astrology transit was uranus hitting the ascendant degree nice yeah me it was uranus to my mercury well actually that's when i met you so venus to mercury <laughs> no no, no uranus. Uranus, yeah uranus, uranus to, to mercury. mercury okay 
I yeah. interpreted that differently for a second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So yeah, um, Uranus to Mercury. Well, that was funny. And we met, of course, on MySpace on, on like line. an internet yep. forum where people are like constantly chatting every day about things and we are all yeah. um, actually, marveling actually at the joined, ability to use a social network. My, uh, I actually joined at my uh, um, it wasn't Uranus on my Mercury, pardon me. It was uh, Jupiter on my Mercury, but trying Uranus. Because um, I did, wasn't alive in the 70s. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was Uranus trying my Mercury while Jupiter was on my Mercury. So it was Jupiter, Uranus trying when Jupiter was on my Mercury. That's when I joined MySpace. Got um, but uh, that was also on the day of uh, my loosing of the bond to Pisces where Uranus was. So Okay. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Good times. Um, Good times. All right, so yeah. Uh, so that there's annual perfections where you're counting one sign house per year. Super useful once you know how to use the technique. Probably a bit much to go into here, but if you, once you learn the technique, the application of it here is obvious. Um, there are also, once you move past some of these sign-based techniques that we're talking about that are really useful for narrowing down the rising sign, you can then get into other degree-based techniques. So each of us has used uh, zodiacal releasing to fine-tune birth times, I think, because especially when the lot of fortune or the lot of spirit or the lot of arrows is really close to a sign boundary, you can really tell the difference um, between one time or another because it results in like the timing technique changing by decades, either by as short as like eight, eight, eight years or sometimes as long as 30 years. And that can be really distinctive. So that's a whole separate issue because that's a complicated technique. But there's also other degree-based techniques like um, secondary progressions, solar arcs, and primary directions where much of uh, these often involve um, certain things like moving the ascendant forward at certain rates, like by a degree a year or different rates like that until it hits an aspect with a planet and then an, an event of some sort or some sort of circumstance is supposed to take place. So these can be really good for narrowing down things and fine-tuning things. You know, for for me at least in my approach, I really hesitate to say that this should be like your starting point, uh, because this is more like fine-tuning things for me. But I know there's other astrologers that do work with rectification, and this is more like their go-to thing for rectification is doing, you know, secondary progressions or solar arcs or primary directions. I think that's. Uh, I feel like that's like mopping a floor with a toothbrush, but um, right. If if you like started with <laughs> primary directions and you're just like, I have no right, idea. I, this person could be born any time <laughs> in this 24 hour period, and I'm going to direct like every degree of the, every degree. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, mm -hmm. that's yeah, sure. So probably not your starting point, but definitely if you're trying to fine tune things, also can be useful if you're trying to fine tune things if. I don't know, maybe the person has a recorded birth time, but it's, you know, rounded or there's like a, a five or 10 or 15 or 30 minute time frame where they could have been born. That's where some of these techniques are going to become more useful in terms of seeing if you can time things. So for example, we had my example of Uranus exactly hitting my ascendant by transit when I started studying astrology. So if I didn't know my ascendant was at 17 degrees of Aquarius, then that may have been something that you could use in retrospect to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And I do that pretty often with zodiacal releasing, if even if it's a known birth time, but like the lot changes during that minute. You know, I've I've actually seen that more than once. Um, we're like, okay, we got to figure this out if that's going to be any sort of substantial part of this consultation. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Well, that, and that's usually what sucks for all three of us and why we've had to get good at rectification is because with Zodak releasing, because it's such an important technique, sometimes you'll cast the chart and you're like an hour before the client session and you start looking at it and you see the lot of fortune is at like 29 degrees of, of Taurus or something like that. And so you- Hashtag astrologer. <laughs> right. That's, that's like obscure <laughs> ancient Hellenistic astrologer nightmares <laughs> because then you have to run both zodiac releasing periods and figure out which one it is, or you have to figure that out during the co- course of the consultation very early on, in which case what you're doing is like on the fly rectification. Mm-hmm. Which I don't love, but sometimes is probably like easier than, you know, like a general rectification, just because you're isolating it to a specific part of their life, either like their relationship life or their, you know, career trajectory. And usually because the technique is so useful in really popping out important um, events that happened or or what quality it was during that uh, for that area of their life during that time, um, you, you can usually distinguish one from the other if you're only looking at two. As long as they have a good memory or records, at least. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And that's notwithstanding the whole potential issue of when and if <laughs> or how the lots could possibly switch in certain cases. No, we're not even Which is, no, again, so we're <laughs> hashtag astrology. All right. <laughs> All right. So, guys, we've made it to the end of this. We've covered everything that we meant to cover. We have not obviously given a fully comprehensive detailed treatment of of rectification, which is as all sort of um, branches of astrology are, or all subsets of astrology are obviously enormous. People have written entire books about it. Of course, there's actually two books I meant to mention um, that are rectification books that are out there. So Carol Tebbs wrote a book titled The Complete Book of Chart Rectification in 2008. Um, It deals with like secondary progression, solar arc directions, and other things like that. So she does tend to focus more on like timing techniques and degree-based techniques, but that's one book you can check out. Um, another book is um, by regulusastrology.com, and that's uh, a rectification manual, The American Presidency, where uh, it's regulus-astrology.com, and he outlines sort of some medieval rectification techniques and then tries to apply them in order to rectify different charts of different presidents. So that's another sort of approach that you could see if you wanted to compare those two books in terms of different approaches to rectification. Um, In terms of concluding remarks, I think we've made the point pretty clearly here that rectification relies on your ability to delineate natal charts in the first place. And it's really just the application of your approach to natal astrology to sort of reverse engineer the chart and establish what your expectations are based on what you know about the the client's life or based on what you know about the person's life whose chart you're trying to rectify. So ultimately, it's speculative and should be treated with caution, but sometimes for some people, it's really necessary in order to have a full birth chart. And from that standpoint, it's useful a useful tool to develop as an astrologer, and all astrologers should probably develop at least some basic familiarity with it because um, it can be really helpful and necessary in some instances, but ultimately very helpful to be able to um, help a person to find their birth time if that's a piece of information that they really desperately want to find. And if there's any way that you're able to do that effectively, then you really would be um, doing that person a favor. So it's something that's ultimately beneficial. 
Mm -hmm. And also, even if you're not trying to specialize in this area, you will inevitably run into it if you're doing client consultations at all, um, possibly in the session after you've started it. So right. you, you kind of need to develop it no matter what if you're going to do client consultations. It's kind of a, a culminating technique. I almost feel like, I almost feel like it's it's like sort of like the f ultimate challenge in some ways. I mean, I guess you could say prediction is the ultimate challenge, but I think um, you know, it really requires kind of all hands on deck in your brain and kind of all of your astrological knowledge has to sort of come to the fore to engage in rectification. So yeah, it's 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 um it's a big achievement to be able to to do it and have the know how to know how you would go about it. Yeah. And and ultimately it's one of the two tests that I've wanted to do at some point for astrologers where I don't like a lot of the like scientific and statistical studies that I have read about astrologers and like skeptics doing in the 1960s and 70s and 80s were frankly kind of stupid, like testing if like Mars in the first house coincided with redheads, statistically speaking, and stuff like that. And I've always like thought about different things that would, once there was a decent synthesis of modern and traditional astrology in place, be more interesting or effective ways to test not just astrology independently, because I'm not not just independently, but also astrologers. And one of them is separate, and it's something with just natal astrology and can an astrologer match charts to biographies or charts to clients in person who are sitting in front of them that they're able to interact with. But the separate one is, could an astrologer correctly rectify a chart if they were given the chance, the choice between two different charts that had, let's say, two different rising signs? And could an astrologer or could a group of astrologers do it consistently enough in order to beat the odds in order to do it you know, more than they should be able to statistically in order to demonstrate that there's something going on with astrology. And so this has one of, been one of my long-term projects in terms of the reconstruction and the synthesis of modern and ancient astrology, and also this sort of approach that we've outlined to, to rectification here. And that's one of the, the reasons why I'm excited that we were able to finally do this episode, because that's one more step towards that. Um, in addition to the fact that, you know, I had developed that approach to rectification 10 years ago and done that work with Hellenistic astrology and figuring out what worked. And it's been nice to see you guys following that approach as well and continuing to develop it further. Um, and then now the three of us are sort of passing that on to the wider community who hopefully can emulate some of our methods and improve upon them. And once we have that kind of standardization, then you know, who knows, maybe some sort of test like that would be possible. But this is the first step. All right. Mm -hmm. So um, let's see, other things to mention. Both of you guys do uh, consultation, do rectification consultations, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So um, Lisa, what's your website where, can, where people can find out more information? Mine's just lisashime.com. And you can see my name spelled on the screen there. It's not phonetic. Okay. Yeah. And Patrick? And uh, mine is www.bigfatastro.com. That is the name of my website. Perfect. And it has my <laughs> my uh, articles and my services and um, all 
uh, of my other stuff is on there. So yeah, bigfatastro.com. Awesome. So people can go there to find out more information about your consultations. And then each, you know, what I, what I love about it is it's not just you guys like helping people to find their birth time, but you guys are learning from every example that you do in addition to applying the the sort of cumulative wisdom that you have up to this point. Each new one teaches you something new in addition to that. And so it's sort of a, it's a circular, not circular, but it's a, it's a two-way street. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's sort of hel- helping to push things forward at the same time. And obviously a lot of the examples and things that we drew on as like anecdotes during the course of this were drawn from your experience working with clients. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And um, for myself, I have a lecture on my consulting site currently that gives like a concise 90 minute treatment of how to do annual perfections. Um, I've made most of it redundant by doing this podcast over the past three three hours. Um, so I am though planning on on creating sometime soon a, a larger course on rectification where we go through basically this outline and all of these steps in more details and give more chart examples. So I'll probably be launching that on theastrologyschool.com sometime in the next few months. And yeah, if you're interested though in learning more about actual natal chart delineation, which is the foundation of any approach to rectification, as we've said, I would definitely recommend checking out my book, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, and checking out my course on the topic, which is available at theastrologyschool.com, because it's not just about studying ancient history, it's about taking really practical techniques and learning how to apply them in modern charts. All right. Hashtag astrologer dreams. Astrologer dreams. (laughs) All right. I think we did it. This was a marathon episode. Thank you guys for hanging in there with me. It's it's we're up to like two hours and fifty-six minutes. So we've got a, a very even <laughs> three hours. Um, but I think this is this is an episode that I've been meaning to do forever and I'm excited I'm happy about how it came out and and thank you both for for doing it with me. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. All right, and thank you everybody for listening. Uh you're awesome. We appreciate the audience and the support, especially from all the patrons who have been supporting this work over the past few years, because it gives us the ability to do in-depth episodes like this, which are like serious treatments of astrology, where we're trying to set the foundations for what will hopefully be sort of thriving um, sort of community of astrologers in the future over the course of the next few decades. Uh, so thanks a lot for your support. Uh, make sure you've subscribed to the podcast and so on and so forth. So That's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.